Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello and welcome to show number 364. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. When I look out my window here today, it is a little bit dumb and a little bit miserable looking. It's one of those mornings where it's not really getting light, you know, it's still kind of that dark and yes, it's the kind of the, the morn where it should, it should be light, it should be nice, but it's it's not looking too good, you know what I mean, but... Listen, we have a show. Wow, man. Just I see why, why I'm excited about it. I've got a great story in there. I've got the fact news by JJ Campanella. And I've got another one of those talks by Mr. Sci-Fi, Mark Zickery, about Ray Bradbury. And I'm going to play that straight away. And I got some lovely emails about that. The last one we took in when Mark talked about Ray Bradbury and Rod Sterling. And this is, a, you know what I mean? That's the, oh, that's the essence, you know what I mean? Of like just dipping into that world, you know, that forgotten world of science fiction, you know, when it was just starting out. That's what gets me. That's what I love it. And Mark's got this kind of direct line, you know what I mean? Kind of met these guys, talked to these guys, you know what I mean? And this is like, now we've got to kind of preserve what Mark knows, you know, and get it down on history, get it down so we kind of remember it, you know what I mean? Because, you know, we're kind of getting pushed up to that front of that, <laughs> that bloody cliff, you know what I mean? And we need to get these things captured. And like I say, Mark's memory's got some great stories in there. And I'm going to play that straight away, do you know what I mean? So that's what's coming in today's show. First off, we'll kick off with Mark Zickery talking about Ray Bradbury and the Martian Chronicles. Then we have the main fiction, which is Schools of Clear by Derek Koonskin. Then, like I say, we have JJ Campanella with his Science News for November. That is all going on at Starship Sova. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. 
So without further ado, Mr. Sci-Fi Mark Zickery talks about Ray Bradbury. Hi guys, it's Mark Zickery, Mr. Sci-Fi, also known as Mark Zickery of Space Command. And uh, I promised that I would do another uh, in a series of Ray Bradbury videos uh, based on my friendship with Ray Bradbury and things he told me that were not told in general to other people. <laughs> so this is one of these. And today I'll be talking about the Further Martian Chronicles, also known as Ray Bradbury's Lost Mars. And just to preface this all, uh, many of you, of course, know that one of Ray's great books is uh, The Martian Chronicles. And I learned from Ray and also from another friend of mine, Norman Corwin, how that book came about. Norman Corwin was the great writer of radio. He was the guy that basically Ray Bradbury and Rod Serling wanted to grow up to be. And uh, essentially, Norman was uh, someone... Well, basically, he was the one who would write an entire series of radio plays. And one of his great radio plays was called On a Note of Triumph, which was uh, when we won the war in Europe, he was commissioned to write an hour-long drama talking about what that meant, what we were going to do from there, and it was broadcast simultaneously on all the networks with no commercials. So when uh, Ray Bradbury started to get well-known, he uh, wrote a letter to Norman Corwin saying, if you uh, like, well, he basically sent a, his short stories along, a book of his short stories, and said, if you like these half as much as I love your radio plays, uh, I'd love to take you out for coffee. And Norman responded to him saying, uh, you're not taking me out to coffee, I'm taking you out for dinner. And they became extremely good friends. This is um, in the late 1940s. And uh, just as Ray was starting to gain a little bit of, of, of a name for himself as a short story writer, well, Ray at that time, he would basically sit down on a Monday, write an entire short story in one sitting. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, he'd polish it. Friday, he'd mailed it off to his agent, Don Congdon in New York. Ray was living in Los Angeles. And uh, then start all over again on Monday. And he'd be writing 50 uh, stories a year and selling many of them. And that was what he was doing and taking two days off, I'm sorry, two weeks off to uh, pr presumably go on vacation or have a break. And that was his life. Uh, but uh, at one, and, and he also wrote a short story called Ela. That was a, a story of m a man landing on Mars and a, a Martian woman who's in an unhappy marriage who has a telepathic uh, dream of meeting. Uh, a handsome captain from Earth, and it's a terrific short story. And when Ray wrote that, Norman Corwin read it and said, this is very, very good, you should write more Mars stories. So Ray started writing Mars stories, and he would sit down, and he would just kind of spin out uh, variations on a theme. So he might write several Mars stories that were about first contact between Earth and Mars, uh, different um, uh, rocket ships from Earth landing on Mars and having different things happen to them, or... Uh, early colonization stories, and so forth. And he wrote many, many of these stories. Uh, but then what happened was his wife Maggie got pregnant with her first daughter, and she wouldn't be able to work anymore once the baby was born. And Ray knew that he would have to increase his uh, earnings because otherwise they wouldn't be able to make a go of it. So Norman Corwin at that point was living in New York and said to Ray, um, come to New York and I'll take you around and I'll introduce you to the different book editors and maybe you can get a book deal out of that. So Ray took the Greyhound bus from Los Angeles to New York and uh, and basically stayed at the YMCA 
And Norman introduced him to a number. Norman was very, very famous at that point. He was writing for CBS. He, he also wrote a movie called Lust for Life that was about Vincent Van Gogh. It starred Kirk Douglas. And it was, um, Norman was nom- nominated for an Oscar for that. I, I knew Norman through uh, many of the later decades of his life. He died at 101 uh, just a few years ago. An amazing writer, a brilliant man. I highly recommend uh, checking out his work as well. You can go online and listen to his radio plays. Just Google them, Norman Corwin. And uh, so one of the one of the editors that Norman introduced Ray to was a, a, a an editor named Walter Bradbury, no relation to Ray. And uh, he met with Ray, and Ray said, "Well, I have these short stories. I'd like to do a collection of short stories in book form." And B- Walter Bradbury said, "Well, Mr. Bradbury, we don't we don't publish." Uh, short story collections they, they really can't you really can't sell them they're not very lucrative but maybe you could take some of these Mars stories you've been doing and weave them together into a narrative that would that would stand as a book so why don't you go back to the Y tonight and see what you can do so Ray went back to the YMCA that night and unbeknownst to himself he'd actually been writing a narrative of these stories and uh, and so he that night he worked up the outline because some of the Mars stories were about uh, various expeditions from Earth landing and encountering Martians. Then, basically, the the humans uh, uh, colonize Mars, and the Martians catch catch a disease from the Earthlings, just like the Indians caught a disease from the Europeans. They're ex- they're basically decimated, and then nuclear war happens on Earth. Um, the, the human population is decimated, and the the last few survivors from Earth go back to Mars to uh, to survive and become the new Martians. And so he wove the, that basic thread together. Uh, that night in the YMCA, the next morning he met with Walter Bradbury, and Walter Bradbury said, great, great, I'll buy this. And, uh, and he said, you got anything else that could make a book? And Ray said, well, I wrote a story called The Illustrated Man uh, about an, uh, a, a tattooed man at a carnival whose uh, tattoos come alive. Maybe they could come alive and be different stories. Uh, you know, they, they'd be like a rocket ship and so forth. And so that would be the book. It'd be this this illustrated man whose tattoos come alive and Walter Bradbury said sold and so so in one meeting Ray had sold two books and uh, and so he uh, got paid the advances and he took the train home in triumph uh, rather than, than the bus and he came back and the Martian Chronicles and the illustrated man were published in 1950 and uh, and uh, they were very very successful and Ray's career was often running in earnest so of course I read the Martian Chronicles as a kid really loved it and it, it's one of my favorite books. I have a first edition of it somewhere back there behind me and that Ray signed. And, uh, and as Ray and I became friends in the last decade or so of his life, uh, Ray and I were talking about these Mars stories. And Ray mentioned that he had a number of other Mars stories that were not in the Martian Chronicles. And we started talking, and I came to realize there were about 22 of them. And uh, they followed the same chronology as the Martian Chronicles, but they weren't in the Martian Chronicles. Because basically, Ray would sit down and he might write eight stories about first contact of these different expeditions from Earth landing on Mars, and in the Martian Chronicles, there's only four of them. So there's another four that aren't in the Martian Chronicles, and there's other stories about the first uh, colonies, human colonies on Mars, and so forth. And there's a great story called Dark They Were in Goldeneye about uh, the, the colonists, the human colonists, being left on Mars when there's a nuclear war on Earth, most of the humans go back to Earth to uh, to defend the home planet. And the, the the colonists who stay on Mars in that story basically become these Martians. They turn into Martians. Mars uh, embraces them. It's a great short story. So uh, so initially, I had the idea of with Ray of doing a book. And this is the this is actually the proposal. This is the book itself. It's the further Martian Chronicles, the other Martian Chronicles. 
and uh, and I basically put this together. And I interviewed Ray about those stories. I interviewed him on audio, so I have those audio recordings uh, talking about all of the Mars stories in his career and his life. And I wove this all together, and I wrote a long introduction, and, and, and I put all the stories together in the order that I thought they should go that, that followed the chronology of the Martian Chronicles. And, uh, and I, pr- I proposed this as a book. And eventually this evolved into a book that was published as the complete Martian Chronicles that included the Martian Chronicles and the... Um, the uncollected Mars stories and unpublished Mars stories, and I actually wrote the introduction to the unpublished Mars stories uh, for that collection. It's a it's a rare book; one can find it, and it's a big, heavy tome in a slipcase, and and it's quite a, a wonderful book. But once once that was going to be published, I realized that there was a, a another life for those stories, and I I suggested this to Ray, and I said, well, why don't why don't you let me do a an eight-hour miniseries that we would call Ray Bradbury's Lost Mars, and I would script it and uh, and produce it, and it would basically weave together the narrative of these of these uh, twenty-two stories. So it would be a, a companion to the Martian Chronicles. And uh, Ray said, "Great." And so he gave me the rights, and uh, I reached out to my friend Michael Nankin, who was one of the great directors on uh, on uh, Battlestar Galactica. And the idea was that Michael Nankin and I would produce it. Michael would direct it. I would write it. And I sat down and I wrote uh, a, an outline for an eight our miniseries called Ray Bradbury's Lost Mars. And I wove all of these stories together into a single narrative. And, and it included Dark They Were and Golden Night and many other wonderful stories, uh, the, the Strawberry Window, etc., etc. And, um, and uh, we w- took it out and pitched it. And we could not sell it. We could not sell it. And, uh, and I was very disappointed. And I thought, my God, this is, you know, uh, this is such a no-brainer for, th- for this to get made because it would be so wonderful. And... Um, and so, but, 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 you know, that was, that was the reality of the business. And, um, and so I still have the outline, and as you saw, I still have the proposal for the complete book, which is actually very different from the complete Martian Chronicles in that it goes into much more depth on this material. And uh, at some point, I'm, 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 I may post the outline that I did, because I'm very proud of it. I'd still love to do that project. But, um, but uh, that was really sort of what, what, what ended my... Um, my desire to pitch to the networks and the studios that led directly to Space Command because if I thought, I thought to myself, if if they don't get it, the Ray Bradbury's Lost Mars would be wonderful. And one of the questions they would say, they would ask me, is they would say, well, but but Ray Bradbury's Mars is not the same as the Mars that we're seeing on 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 you know through the Curiosity rover and so forth. And I said, well, yes, but but Oz isn't really over the rainbow either. This is a fantasy. Uh, construct. This is a is a great fantasy realm and fantasy work, and it doesn't have to be a literal story. It doesn't have to be exactly what's on Mars that we're seeing through the the, the NASA photographs. And they just couldn't quite get that. And uh, so so this is another project. Like like you know, I, you, I haven't mentioned my the fact that Ray Bre- the Ray Harryhausen, another one of Ray Ray's dear friends, and I teamed up around that same time to do his unproduced projects, and I actually outlined a sequel to uh, Jason and the Argonauts called Jason in the Underworld, so I'll do another Mr. Sci-Fi video about my uh, my relationship and working relationship with Ray Harryhausen and Ray's friendship, Ray Bradbury's friendship with him uh, as another video sometime soon. But for now, it was basically, I just wanted to cover this story and this narrative about Ray Bradbury's Lost Mars because it was wonderful to work on. It was wonderful material to get into, and um, and Ray was very gracious in letting me have this material for over a year to take out and and try and set up and um, but I realize now 
that I could reach out directly to my audience. And so may, maybe someday after I do Space Command, I will, I will reach out to the audience again and do uh, Ray Bradbury's Lost Mars because I would love to. It's just a shame that Ray won't be here to see it realized. The other person I brought aboard was Ian McCaig, who designed Darth Maul and Queen Amidala, who's worked with me on many, many projects, and he was going to be the designer of, uh, of Ray Bradbury's Lost Mars. So that would have been yet another marvelous thing. So anyway, I just want to share that with you and, and let you know about this project and, and how dear Ray was and how amazing he was as a writer. If you haven't read The Martian Chronicles, do. It's a, it's a great piece of work. It really holds up. And, um, and so until next time, this is Mr. Mr. Sci-Fi, Mark Zickery, Mark Zickery of Space Command. Uh, like, share, do all the things you do, subscribe, and we'll talk to you again real soon. Bye-bye. <laughs> You see, <laughs> you know, we had all the blow trumpets, mind you, but that's what makes this show great, you know, just being, having like, you know, Mark's kind of experience and, and just knowledge, man, you know, being able you know, to come on the show, you know, big that Mark, man, that was just, just fantastic. Thank you so much. I'll put a link on the Mr. Sci-Fi on Mark's like video blog over there at YouTube. Do, you know, do pop over there and say hello. And, you know, get involved with these kind of, I look out for his, you know, his Project Space Command as well, which was just, you know, when he kind of did that on Kickstarter, yeah, I'm proud, our Kickstarter got funded, but when Mark did his, do you know what I mean, it just went through the roof, the kind of funding that got in there, and it was just fantastic. So look out for, you know, anything to do with Mark, do you know what I mean, and hopefully Mark will be kind enough to kind of send some more of these talks over, just because they're just like right right battles you know what i mean ready for us to listen to which is fantastic mark big thank you sir so next up is the main fiction and it's by derek coonskin schools of clear derek coonskin is a writer of science fiction and fantasy living in quebec i can't pronounce where he lives so i'm just going to say quebec his fiction has appeared in analog beneath the skies black gate on spec and three escape artists podcasts several anthologies and the multiple times in Asimov's, I mean, that alone itself, you know, being in Asimov's is just a kind of credit there. Well done there, Derek. In 2012, he was shortlisted for the Aura Award, and in 2013, his novelette, We of the Needle, won the Asimov's Award. He has a master's degree in molecular biology and a bloodline that traces its way back through seven generations of Quebecians, however, however, Derek, however they, they pronounce, both of which have helped him set the following story 300 years into the future of the clouds of Venus. Oh, bring it on, Derek. This story is just narrated, just fantastic, by Veronica Kager. And Veronica's voice, man, just takes you. Do you know what I mean? I get ex- I'm still, do you know what I mean? I don't know how many years I've been doing this there now. But I still get excited. Do you know what I mean? When you kind of just, well, especially when you listen to say Veronica's voice and you've got a story by Derek, like this Coonskin, that just takes you away, takes you away from everything that's kind of the, 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 the worries and the troubles that are going on in this real world and just take you and just for a little bit, just ease that kind of trouble and strife and just take it to kind of forgotten places that kind of you dream about hope and, and everything like that. But anyway. <laughs> Look out for Veronica and narrator's story, Return to Earth, and I forget, actually, whether, you know, it's somewhere in our back history, and I've mentioned before, just a fantastic kind of story, and Veronica's, you know, rendition of it just made that one of the most, you know, memorable stories for me, you know what I mean? A brand new writer just kicked out, I wish I 
memories near, man. <laughs> anyway, Veronica Ray is a narrator of many genres, most notably for the Secret World Chronicle podcast novel series and the cyberpunk noir podcast novel Broken. She is also the voice of the Femme Phantom in the new all-time radio drama Hidden Harbour Mysteries. She can be found at voicesbyveronica.com. When not behind the microphone or slaving away on words, Veronica's works works to release her soul from academia in the pursuit of a doctorate in science education. Oh, man, Veronica, that sounds heavy going <laughs> for a young, young kitty like myself. Oh, anyway, what a fantastic story. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present Schools of Clay, written by Jarek Koonsen. Present. The workers' revolution began on the hive's 903rd day, when the hero Pulsar was above the horizon to the north. A pool of predatory Shaghal emerged from behind a small asteroid to the west. The exhaust of their thrust was shielded by their bodies, but the point shines of their souls were visible to those in the colony who had souls. The shine was just slightly blue-shifting. The skates were not ready. Only half the princesses were fueled in the launch tubes of the hive. Indecision washed over the colony. Skates and souls yelled over each other. Then, a thousand tiny reactions bloomed. The colony panicked. The flat, triangular skates hopped along the regolith in different directions on steely fingers. Divya stood above the rising dust on a mound of mind tailings. He had been meeting with a half-dozen revolutionaries in the slums past the worker shanties. None of his revolutionaries possessed souls, so they could not see the shaghal, but the panicked radio bursts from the hive alarmed them. Some thought that a squad of hive drones had found them. Oh no, Divya said. Flee! Divya's soul crackled to him in the radio static. Save the princesses! Divya, the revolution isn't ready! Tejas said. Tejas was a soulless worker, made of carbon-reinforced ceramic. He was triangular and flat, with a single, lightly abraded lens on the vertex of the leading edges of his wide fins. The workers are not assembled. Hours away yet, the shaghouse split into two pods. The first pod of predators continued toward the hive. The second angled to intercept the migration, before it had even launched. The whole colony is already late, Divya said. The revolution must happen now. Nearby, three skates hopped between the dusty mounds of mine tailings toward the hive. Their radioactive souls shone hot behind their eyes. Tax farmers, coming from the farms to join the migration. We have only minutes, Divya said in a radio discharge. He felt sick with doubt. He led his followers forward. The revolutionaries leapt upon the three tax farmers. Divya screamed out his own fears. The violence against Kin was surreal, matching the strange panic that exploded all over the colony as its last hours played out. The tax farmers struggled, stirring graphite fines in the vanishing gravity of the asteroid. The revolutionaries pinned the tax farmers upside down. Their steel fingers waved uselessly, and their mouths were exposed. Divya's conspirators held tight to the frozen subsurface. The tax collectors cried out with crackling radio noise that carried far on the great asteroid. But while the colony was launching the migration, 
no one would notice. Too many hurried to save the princesses, the princes, and themselves. In this chaos, the workers' revolution could become real. One of the three tax farmers appeared to be a landlord by the brightness of his soul. He was the most dangerous. Beneath the hardened carapace of boron carbide, his soul spattered the hard, energetic radiation from uranium and thorium, and the soft, diffuse glow from tritium and potassium. The landlord's soul spoke frantically. Divya's soul was strangely quiet. It feared Divya. The landlord's rows of short legs waved helplessly, and he was hot. His soul heated the landlord's whole triangular body. Although it was a sin-to-waste reaction mass, Divya did not put it past the landlord to pour the stored volatiles over his soul, launching himself and everyone on him into orbit. They could not hold him if that happened. Divya reached into the landlord's mouth with the pry and pliers that doctors carried. Deep in the landlord's mouth, Divya pried back supporting metal bands made to hold the soul. The landlord understood what Divya was doing, and in his horror released a cool spray of thrust from the trailing edge of his fins. But then Divya had the soul free, and he held the rectangular cake of radioactive isotopes in the shine of the pulsar. They all stared and listened in awe. Only Divya had ever seen a naked soul. These revolutionaries were farm workers, ore processors, and haulers of regolith. Divya turned to Tejas. The skate turned onto his back, exposing fingers blunted from months of scratching frozen nitrogen and graphite from around hard chondrules. Charged regolith dust grimed his opened mouth. Divya set the still-screaming soul within Tejas's mouth. Any skate could have a soul. Souls gestated in the large ore plants within the queen, near the kilns where the skates themselves were fired. Divya had been chosen to be a doctor, and received a soul only by chance. The soulless could farm volatiles but could never find radioactive isotopes in the regolith or fly from the asteroid. Divya fastened the bands, locking the soul into place. They turned over the newly ensouled skate. The panic of the hive heightened. The throbbing radio signals from the queen signaled that she was preparing to launch the first wave of princesses. Divya hurried to remove the souls from the other two tax farmers and place them into Barini and Ugra. The souls beamed their fear and outrage in radio static. Once, hive drones would have come and arrested them all. But this was the end of the world the souls had preached. Far off, above the great bulk of the queen, the leaders of the migration launched. Bursts of hot volatiles, briefly visible through the thickening dust, launched princesses at tremendous velocities. Six. Seven. Eight. Waves of princes and their courtiers threw themselves into space after the potential hive queens. Then, a wave of slower-moving, uncoordinated tax farmers and landlords. Divya's soul began speaking at first in quiet, fearful tones, but then more strongly. Come, Divya said, there is no more time. Dozens of revolutionaries had crowded them. The soulless, they had put their faith in Divya. They retreated at his words, stunned, and Divya's heart cracked. Of everything that they had hoped for all of the workers, they only had time to save three. Not even save. There was every chance that Divya and his three ensouled revolutionaries would be killed by either the Shaghal or the migration itself. 
They were not princes, fed volatiles and radioactive dust by scores of workers. They had been given every nugget of frozen volatiles that could be smuggled out of the work camps, but it was probably not enough. Divya opened a valve. A trickle of the volatiles he had stored in his body passed over his soul, superheating. A searing mix of water, methane, ammonia, and nitrogen shot from the spouts on Divya's trailing edge, launching him over the hive. The great, centered ceramic bulk of the queen, dwarfing all the piles of mine tailings and studded with the launch tubes of the princesses, lay beneath him, shrinking as he rose. The ordered lines of skates carrying ore and volatiles to her had dissolved. They fled into her now for protection she could not offer. Beneath him, a new volley of princesses burst from the tubes, shooting past Divya. Their steel fingers were tucked tightly beneath them, and the spray of their thrust sent shivers of aching attraction through him. A squadron of princes and their servants followed. Their wide, dust-free fins turned gracefully, briefly reflecting starlight from smooth carapaces of boron carbide beneath fine, tight nets of steel mesh. They turned the webs of steel to face the hero pulsar, absorbing its microwaves as they thrust. Breathtaking. Intimidating. Kin. Divya and his revolutionaries thrust hard after them. The horizon of the great asteroid fell away on all sides, revealing the clean dark of space. The colony, with the hive and its halo of slums, became a dark, irregular shape, lit only by the brief points of the few souls still there. Then the third and last wave of princesses launched, with every soul that could, even those who could only thrust briefly. Invisible were the workers left behind, colorless as the dirt. He'd fought for them, tended their hurts, and had wanted to bring them on migration. Those brother skates tugged at his heart, but eerily, less than he expected. Divya was enlightened, rational, but the strength of instinct surprised him. Divya felt the urge to protect the princes, clouded with his attraction for the princesses. He needed to control both feelings. His soul whispered the navigational liturgy to him, and he wanted to follow its lead. His soul had migrated before, in a successful prince of a generation past. His soul carried the wisdom of flight angles through the vastness of space and time, how to block the shaghal from reaching the princesses and the princes. Each soul knew the same way to the same spawning ground waiting for them in the future. But to his soul, those workers left behind were no more important than the giant shell of the abandoned queen after the princesses had launched. The smaller pod of Shaghal proceeded to the hive. They were radio-reflective, not thrusting, but riding the hero's voice with mesh sails catching the powerful microwaves shouting out each second. The dying queen served by soulless skates would feed the predators. The larger pod's course would intercept the migration. Past Divya hopped over the regolith, arriving at work farm number seven. Several days of bribing low-level officials with frozen nitrogen had gotten him a permit. A big skate with a sleek carapace patrolled the edge of the farm. Under a thin layer of dust, the Grand Prince's insignia was visible, scored in the ceramic on both leading edges of his wide horizontal fins. The lens at the front of his head showed the hot radioactive light of his soul behind it. "'What do you want?' the tax farmer said. "'Someone called for a doctor,' Divya said. 
he tilted his leading edges lower, showing less of his own soul. The landlord's thugs were not worth antagonizing. From his gullet, Divya pulled a thin sheet of beaten aluminum inscribed with his permit. Go back to the hive, the tax farmer said. We got the lazy skate back to work. I've come all this way. I may as well check on the other workers, Divya said. The tax farmer threw the permit. Waste your time if you want. Thank you, Divya said, retrieving the permit. Rows of steel fingers undulated beneath him, and he hopped onto the work farm. The farm was so large that the curvature of the asteroid nearly hid the great mounds of debris at the far end. The flat, triangular bodies of the skates moved over the regolith, digging and sifting with sharp fingers. Their radio sails were pulled tight across the tops of their wide horizontal fins to feed on the radio and microwaves of the hero's voice. The workers were almost all soulless. Some few were given weak souls to find radioactive grains during their sifting. Divya had received a respectable soul. Doctors needed keen, penetrating sight. The tiniest injuries and earliest-stage material stresses could only be detected with radiation reflected back from ceramic carapaces. Divya passed a mound of regolith scraped from the surface of the asteroid, sifted for icy clays, hard nuggets of nitrogen and carbon dioxide, and iron-nickel granules for the foundries and kilns within the queen. The tailing mounds were chondrules of silicates and magnetites. Atop the hill was one of the Grand Prince's landlords. The landlord preached a droning liturgy from the apex of the mound, but the words were not his. The soul behind his eye recited the sagas for him to repeat. The metronomic rhythms of electric buzzing and snapping carried some distance before they were drowned by the inscrutable mystery of the hero's voice. Tax farmers and other landlords heard the liturgy and retransmitted it, complete with its numbing, repetitive rhythms. Divya had become adept at ignoring his soul. Otherwise, he would spend his days in sagas and parables that froze the class struggle into hardened clay. He moved among the workers. He knew many of them by name, from protests and rallies. Good morning, Esha, Divya said to a dusty skate. Esha's fingers moved in a blur beneath him, scrabbling at the hard regolith, creating a cloud of dust in the microgravity. Esha was a good worker. Several nuggets of nitrogen and carbon dioxide shone in dusty pride beside him. A respectable meal for a prince, or even one of the princesses. Good morning, Divya. What brings you out here? I heard a doctor was needed. That was days ago. Dewani was beaten. Where is he? They're supervising him close to the West Mound. A tax farmer approached. Get back to work, he said. Hey, who are you? Divya turned to show the mark of a doctor that had been scored on both leading edges of his fins. The tax farmer grunted derisively. Divya was a doctor to workers. If he'd had a patron, he would have been the doctor to princes and perhaps even the princesses. Tax farmers did not consider country doctors like Divya anything more than workers reaching above their station, although they themselves happily came to him with their aches. Hoy, the tax farmer said. You didn't call me to pick this up, he said, pushing both Divya and Esha aside to grab the nuggets of frozen gases. I just found them, Esha said. That's what they all say. Get back to work. And you, doctor, get done whatever you were doing before I revoke your permit. The tax farmer hopped toward the next worker.
Go see the skates after you see Duani, Esha said. They'll want news of him. The workers look up to you. You received his soul, but you haven't forgotten them. The droning of the liturgy resumed. Like the hero's voice, the meaning of the words had decayed. Present The hive vanished behind him. The minuteness of their former home was spiritually humbling. Stippled stars on black night, close companions since birth, now wrapped him in their vastness. His struggle for the workers, all his words to free his brothers, seemed hollow here. And the migration might still die stillborn, like a drone without a soul. No future. Not even a present. His soul was silent, perhaps hoping that Divya had resolved himself to his duty. He fell behind the thrusting princes, still so far that they were just tiny points of hot breath. Perspective placed them near the unknowable voice of the pulsar. The thought of approaching the hero terrified him. Divya's soul began, in staccato radio crackles, the liturgy of migration. Vectors and star sightings, landmarks and flight speeds drawn from the sagas. The souls had done this before. They adjusted the liturgy each migration to account for the drift of the asteroids, but the mythic arc of the hero and the maw was unchanging. Divya knew the migration route. He'd studied it, perhaps in a way unseemly for a country doctor. He eased his thrust, contrary to the liturgy. His soul repeated the timings of the thrusts and their strengths. Divya ignored his soul. He needed to be trailing the princes and princesses for what he wanted to try, and he needed his thrust later. The pulsar became a fat dot. Its gravity drew him onward, and its voice had become a deafening constant shout. Divya unfurled his radio sail. It bloomed outward, bound to him by many fine steel wires. He angled his sail so that the microwaves pushed him off a collision with the collapsed star. The force would grow as he approached, compensating for the rising gravity. The pulsar had bloated into a fat disc. The hero's voice was too pure and loud to be audible. Microwaves seared tiny arcs of electricity across Divya twice each second, filling him with life for what must come. He was sick with overcharging. His soul recited the prayer of brushing against divinity. When that finished, his soul told the parable of the prince fleeing before waves of the Shaghal. The hero made Divya large and small. Divya could not turn to look how close the Shaghal might be, nor even if his fellow revolutionaries had kept pace with him. One approached divinity alone. Past Divya hoped to find Dwani. The strip-mined regolith fields were uneven, Layers of frozen dust revealed blocks of immovable iron-nickel. Such large masses of exposed iron-nickel did strange things to the hero's voice. Where they could, workers dumped mine-tailings upon them. But sometimes all the fingers in the colony could not cover them, and the odd protrusions sparked and crackled, interpreting the hero's voice in their own way, like the mad. Divya reached the West Mound, an immense pile of mine-tailings looking over the entirety of the plain. It had been here long before the Queen and her Grand Prince had arrived. Poor workers, Divya said. How long had they toiled to make that mound? 
long enough to fuel generations of princesses and princes on to the migration, his source said, fully fueled with discerning souls to guide the foundation of new colonies. At remarkable cost, Divya said. Remarkable that we survive at all, the soul said. The tax farmers inspected his permit. His soul shone as brightly as theirs, although these skates had likely been extorting bribes of volatiles from the workers for months. They might have enough breath to migrate with the princes and courtiers. The work of a tax farmer and landlord was difficult, but could be lucrative. Difficult skates worked the fields around the West Mound. Fewer breaks, harsher discipline. Not that workers had many privileges. The workers here were slower, and the digging was hard. A tax farmer indicated a lone worker close by the base of the mound. Dwani? Divya asked when he had neared. The skate turned, and Divya recoiled. The worker's carapace had been smashed where the clean lines of the leading edge came to a point. Near the vertex was a jagged hole, dusted with regolith attracted by the electricity within Dwani. The lens of the eye was so scratched that no part of its surface was smooth. Who is it? Dwani said. Divya. The doctor. What happened, Dwani? The tax farmers went after a few organizers. Reinforced ceramic doesn't stand up well to iron rods. A horrified sadness crept over Divya as he neared Dwani. The radioactive shine of Divya's soul scattered back from Dwani's carapace, revealing many microscopic fractures. Some of the cracks were so large that Divya would not have even needed a soul to see them. They reached far along Dwani's fins, one nearly to the trailing edge. Dust, especially the static-charged graphite finds of the regolith, infected the cracks to say nothing of the dust entering through the hole near Dwani's damaged eye. The dust would soon interfere with the neural wiring. Whoever did this didn't mean for you to live long, Divya said. I can't move some of my fingers, but I can still work. As if to make light of it, Dwani moved his fingers. Only a half dozen of the steel limbs moved. The rest dangled. Well, I hope you didn't come all this way just for me. Unless you have some cure. One of the committee members got word out. I came as soon as I could. It won't do any good, Dwani said. The tax farmers know their job. I'm sorry. Don't be sorry. Do something. More than just writing little manifestos and three-point plans on committee broadsheets. Violence isn't getting us anywhere, Dwani coward. There's no end in what you're doing. You and a school of other committee leaders make it sound as if a total upset of the hive will somehow make us free. We'll be free when we are not oppressed. Half of us will be dead, win or lose, Divya said, and the chaos will do nothing except cripple the hive. We'll be easy pickings for the Shaikal. We already are. The princesses, too, Divya said. What is the point of all our work if even the princesses do not get away? Extinction is not social change. You never resist, Dwani said. That's why they gave you a soul. Present. 
Divya's cry of suffering mixed with the tireless booming of the hero's voice. His soul had begun crying long ago. Weight crushed them. Divya felt as heavy as an asteroid or a star, important to the world, possessing meaning. And yet, he was tiny. The hero was now an angry blue and purple sphere. A beam of burning microwaves ripped across its face twice a second, throwing Divya back by his radio sail. Strange radiations he'd never seen swirled in sickly oranges and reds on the pulsar's surface. Divya reached perigee, the closest approach to the hero, and he thrust. It ached. His thrust burned. The hero's voice stung. The pull of his radio sail creaked his whole carapace. He was going to snap. And then the hero was behind him, his voice throwing Divya forward. His soul, between bouts of terror, repeated the correct speeds and distances of the migration. The temptation to relent to the soul was strong, but Divya followed the migration at a distance with his co-revolutionaries in clumsy formation around him. The lighthouse beams of the hero's voice propelled them faster and faster. On this course, the radio waves would accelerate and charge them continuously as they flew straight and true towards the black hole called the Maw. It was a long way between the hero and the Maw. Sometimes half or more of a migration could fall to the Shaghal before the Maw had a chance to destroy them. And that was when the courtiers distracted the Shaghal and led them away. And the Shaghal certainly followed. Divya held his terror in check. The Shaghal were big, strong and fast, riding under enormous radio sails, leading with maws large enough to crush a skate. The hero's voice already dimmed as they moved away. But Divya listened for any drop in the voice beyond that, which would be the first sign that the Shaghal had found him, had picked him as food. In all the sagas and the teachings of the souls, the pursuing Shaghal placed themselves between their prey and the hero, so that the creatures of appetite slowly crept up with their great mouths while the skates drifted helplessly in their silent shadow. Yet, sometimes the ways of the devil were instructive. Divya settled behind a distant prince, cutting off the radio and microwaves with his sail. The prince tilted his sail, this way and that, trying to escape the shadow, but without the voice, his sail was just wire mesh. The prince retracted his sail, a prelude in the sagas to thrusting. He extended the sail indecisively. Breath was a hard object, sifted or picked from the regolith, but it possessed a holiness. It was the hero's gift for the migration. The taboo of its use was both spiritual and pragmatic. Any use of breath except in the approaches to the hero and the maw in strict soul-guided accelerations could mean not having it later. No! Divya's soul said, suddenly realizing what he was doing. Stop it, you monster! The shadowed prince chittered electrical static, passing alarm across the migration, but it did him no good. The formation spread out. Over long hours, it passed the prince, and Divya finally moved aside, choosing another target to shadow. He drifted past the prince, who, suddenly hearing the hero's voice, began accelerating again. But it would not be enough. The Shaghal had been accelerating all this time, too. They were closing faster than the prince could accelerate. They would consume him. Volatiles, radioisotopes, rare metals, and all. Divya's three revolutionaries shadowed other princes, 
they were not as nimble as Divya. More often than not, the princes escaped, catching radio waves that the revolutionaries had not quite blocked with their sails. But the princes still lost precious moments or minutes of acceleration. It was working. The satisfaction tasted bitter to Divya. He hadn't wanted this and was the first to regret it. He'd wanted some end to the suffering of the workers. The princes had forced this revolution on themselves. One of the courtiers, trailing so far back that he perhaps sensed he would soon be shadowed, retracted his sail and gently spun in flight. Instead of an approaching Shaghal, he saw Divya, Tejas, Barini, and Ugra. He transmitted a radio shout in anger and unfurled his sail. He rode the microwaves expertly, sweeping close to Tejas. Divya cried a warning, but it was too late. The courtier crashed into Tejas and dug with sharp fingers at Tejas's eye, at his mouth, and at the wires holding his radio sail. The fingers snapped two of Tejas's four wires. Tejas pitched as his sail tilted. The courtier leapt away. Tejas! Divya yelled. Tejas began to tumble slowly. He could not retract his sail, nor right it. Divya! Tejas called. Divya slowly pulled ahead as all of Tejas's acceleration spun into his wild careening. Fix my sail! Help! Divya's heart cracked. There was nothing to be done. On the migration, Divya hadn't the materials to replace snapped wires, and the shaghal approached. Leave, his soul said. Fly on. Protect the princes and the princesses now. I'm sorry, Tejas, Divya said. Please, Tejas called. Divya slipped behind Tejas's attacker before he could spread news of their betrayal. The courtier, suddenly without the hero's voice, tilted his sail to no effort. The migration crept away from him. He shrieked warnings, but he was too far for anyone to hear, except Divya. The migration had dispersed widely, a scripturally pure defense against shadowing by Shaghal. No, do not do this, his soul said. Perhaps it had overcome its fear of Divya. Please. Do you know how many workers have suffered because of the princes? Divya asked. Do you know how many have been beaten and killed? You are angry, his soul said. You do not completely understand the way the hero has organized the hives so that the finest and strongest of skates are sent upon migration. They are not the best, Divya said disgustedly. They are the skates who have been given a soul and then use that soul to enslave workers. You are wrong. You are special. I am not. A doctor wore out. Another was needed. I was the easiest to train. That is all. We are all the same. Souls create divisions for their own benefit. The hereditary information you carry in clays are all the same. Circumstances and accidents of feeding and luck have their roles, but you are all kin. We are one colony. The success of a prince is your success. We make sure our kin succeed. We are more than schools of clay, Divya said. And if we truly are all the same kin, you won't mind if it is I instead of the princes who make the final journey with the princess. The hero's thinning voice pushed Divya toward the courtier he shadowed. When they were almost touching, Divya tilted his sail, veered aside, and passed him. 
The courtier's radio sail caught the pulsar's beam and started accelerating, but the shaghal would finish what Divya had started. Past The founding queen and her grand prince had located the hive on an asteroid with a lazy rotation around an axis that pointed almost directly at the pulsar. At the pole, the queen heard the hero's voice tirelessly, but in the piled rubble fields near the worker slums, the low and sold lived with short nights of quiet starvation and lethargy. The pulsar had set an hour ago, and Divya should have been resting, but he'd been invited to a worker's rally. He entered the slums. These are not elements of a society you should be associating with, his soul said. You and I may have a future. There may yet be a time to show your talents and come into a more lucrative position, like a tax farmer, a minor landlord, or even the personal physician to a courtier. Imagine the resources you would have then for the migration. My future will hardly be determined by a meeting, Divya said. A group of skates congregated ahead of them. Look, other souls are here. Ensold workers, his soul said dismissively. Workers are where they put souls that are incapable of memorizing the migratory routes. No one here can help you. Divya, Apisri said. You made it. His friend Apisri edged from the crowd, the flat ceramic triangle of his carapace worn by months of hard building. A soul winked behind the lens of his eye. Like Divya, he had received his soul late in life and had become an engineer. He often spoke at rallies. I heard you went to the work farms. You saw Dwani, Apisri said. The drones were thorough, Divya said. They cracked him. Apisri made a sound. Change is slow, Divya said. Not just slow, Apisri said, not for Divya but for the others. There is no change. Around them, workers sparked loudly in their heads, casting radio waves, yelling. Cheering. They knew Divya here, but he felt trapped in the center of attention as Abhisri spoke. Divya was not a leader. Although they read his manifestos, Divya didn't agree with their methods. We cannot have slow change, Abhisri said, warming to his oration. We cannot hop or crawl toward freedom. More cheers. Divya felt like cheering too. The gaping hole in Dwani's face would not leave his thoughts. We must go, his soul said. Now! All of us are wiped out at every migration, Abhisri said. We never migrate. Only nobles. They're hangers-on. They're enforcers. Revolution now, someone yelled in the darkness. Overthrow the hive! Divya's soul shrieked in panic, so loud that surely others around them heard it. Divya was also alarmed. He cared about these workers. Many were his friends. He was one of them. Revolution would get them killed. A terrible nervousness crept over him as he realized that he was going to speak. We cannot overthrow the hive, Divya said. Violence will not free us. They hissed at him in electrical static. The princes and their courtiers are big, well-fed, and ensouled, Divya said. They can fly, while most of us cannot. The hive is built to repel us. Excellent, Divya's soul said. Defeatist, someone yelled. 
collaborator, someone yelled. Leave, Divya's soul said. This is Divya, Apisri said. Let him say his piece. How much time is left, do you suppose? Divya asked. He was nervous with all eyes upon him. A few months. The nobles fear that they haven't enough volatiles to migrate. Courtiers fear they will not have the fuel to follow. Princes know that without the courtiers, the Shaghal will pursue them. No one spoke. No one moved. And we fear being left behind. Divya felt dizzy. He never threw himself into the middle. What if we ask for souls for some workers? Divya said. Would they give them? No! Someone yelled from the darkness. They beat us till we crack. Yes, they would, Apisri said. So what do we do? Someone demanded. Offer them something, Divya said. A chorus of protests rose all about him. Offer them more than what you are producing in exchange for souls. We can't do that, someone said. We ask for souls, for some of us, to go on the migration? Yes, Apisri said, sounding intrigued. That won't work for everyone, someone said. But if a dozen workers survive the migration, they become the princes of the next generation, Divya said. They can change the colonies that follow. Fewer tax farmers, fewer nobles, more souls for the workers. It isn't enough, someone yelled. A chorus supported him. Of course it isn't enough, Divya said. But it is the best we can get right now. As long as all the workers are wiped out every generation, the workers of the next must restart the struggle, as if it were the first time. We must be in solidarity with the brothers of tomorrow whose clay has not yet been fired. The crowd silenced. A shade of the immensity of their task, of a sense of history, and time slipped over them. Of history, they cried. And some yelled, Divya! No, his soul said. This is against the will of the hero. Some will say this is against the will of the hero, Divya said to the workers. The hero made the princesses and their suitors and the migration, but where in the sagas did the hero make tax farmers? Laughter greeted his joke, but sparking anger, too. Nowhere! And we have a leader, Divya said. Apisri can take our ideas to the princes. Divya, some said, including Apisri. Apisri, Divya said, and was relieved when that cry was taken up. Then other skates spoke. They hadn't the rhetoric to speak at a prince's reception, but their strength as orators lay in the visceral reality of their wanting. These workers scratched and scrubbed the regolith each day for nuggets of gases to launch princesses and their suitors into the future. They had more right to their words than Divya had to his. They deserved to migrate. As the speeches went on, workers gave Divya gentle double knocks of approval with the tips of their fins. Leave, his soul said. You endanger yourself and me. Hive drones won't come here, Divya whispered to his soul. Drones are lazy and greedy and spend their time on the hills. They employ informants. Among the workers? 
The soulless will die when the shaghal come, but many seek to ease their time with easier work. A worker neared, leaning the whole leading edge of his fin against Divya's until their faces were close. Will you migrate, Divya? the worker asked. I have no patron. I have not been given any breath either. You will not be given any, the worker said. This is a bad year and a bad sight for the hive. Many of the landlords will be here with us in the end. Famine, Divya said. Take this. Beneath them, the worker's fingers passed Divya a half-dozen large nuggets of frozen gases. Nitrogen, carbon dioxide, methane. Eat it, the worker whispered, so close that only the two of them could hear. I can't, Divya said. You must. You are one of us, Divya. Divya stared at the gift. The worker might have done any number of things with this much raw reaction mass. He could have bribed tax counters or even a low-status prince if he could get close enough. Hide them quick, the worker said. Divya put them in his mouth and deep into his gullet, past his soul, so as to not melt them. Over time, he could melt and refreeze the gases to purify them. The worker melted into the crowd, as if suddenly shy. Divya retreated, too. This was enormous. When he'd been apprenticed to a doctor, he'd expected to die in terror when the shaghal came. Even when the hive had given him a soul, elevating him into the lowest of the privileged, he'd not changed his thinking. Without volatiles, there was no point in dreaming wishes. But now, this stranger from nowhere had given him a gift, one that separated him from the workers as irrevocably as a soul could. We will migrate, said Divya's soul. Although this is not nearly enough breath for such a journey, it is a start. Let us leave. The meeting is not finished, Divya said. Everyone here is a revolutionary, the soul said. Someone will denounce them all to the hive drones and the princes. Present The migration had broken into three streams, each with at least one princess and a dozen or so attendant princes and courtiers. Divya followed the fastest princess, the one farthest ahead. She was the least likely to be targeted by the Shaghal. Barini and Ugra followed. He did not know either one well. Barini was a hauler of regolith who participated in rallies. Ugra had tilled the soil, and his musical talent produced electrical melodies into which others fit political rhymes and slogans. Neither had seemed a likely revolutionary, but perhaps he wasn't either. Dwani, Abhisri, and all the real leaders were dead, with all the workers of their generation except for three. The three of them became methodical and pitiless. Their targets tried to evade the sudden silencing of the hero's voice with only some success. Hours passed. Then days. Then weeks. The hero's voice attenuated. The best acceleration from the pulsar was in the past. Now, speed grew in slow increments. The princess was a point far ahead, but the courtiers and the princes had fallen behind. Divya retracted his sail and exhaled a puff of volatiles. He slowly pivoted until he faced the pulsar.
The hero was a sad, cool point in the blackness, flashing thin radio and microwaves twice a second, lower in tone and quieter. Divya felt dislocated. His class struggle felt minuscule. This cold vastness offered neither light nor asteroids upon which to shelter. Far behind, the Shaghal appeared tiny, but their radioactive souls shone hard and point-like. Seven of them followed. Divya exhaled another puff to stop his rotation, and unfurled his radio sail. They were close to the princes and courtiers. Weeks of slow work had made each of them adept at stealing the microwaves destined for the sails of the princes. The pulsar's beam was so distant now that its push was faint. Divya and his companions were tiring. A lone princess sailed ahead of the princes and the revolutionaries. The sounds of the souls far in front of them were frantic. The princess ought to be protected at all times. Divya felt the voice of the hero abruptly thin. A moment of panic stole over him. His soul shrieked. Divya had been preparing for this for weeks, imagining the angles, the time he would have. He was not completely shadowed, not yet. Some of the distant voice reached him still. He tilted his sail hard, catching the few microwaves reaching him, accelerating sideways. At first, nothing seemed to be happening. His soul recited the litany of the sacrifice for both of them. But it was working. Slowly, after long minutes, the hero's voice became louder, and he emerged from the shadow. Divya sailed wide to stay away from the Shaghal who had found him, and then snapped his sail back to accelerate again. He felt weak. The sagas called the starvation from the hero's voice the small death. His soul quieted for a long time. It is not what we wanted, his soul whispered. We dream of being at the front of the school with the princess. But we are not. We, too, must serve. We will not escape again, but we may atone for our crimes by leading the Shaghal away. I was weak. I should have opposed you more. Morality is the responsibility of the soul. I have failed, but we now may seek redemption. I never wanted to be a prince, Divya whispered back. Come, Divya cried to Barini and Ugra. Let us create a new hive where workers are free. Divya slowly slipped into place to shadow another prince. In the fourth month of the migration, a shadow fell over Barini. It was sudden and complete. The Shaghal was close and Barini had no hope of sailing free. Barini! Divya cried in radio static. Thrust! Exhale! No! Divya's soul said. On the migration, only a princess may exhale. All breath must be saved for the maw. Barini, Divya said. Thrust! Everyone has a place. He too who is caught serves the hive, Divya's soul said. The soul was not wrong. Every courtier and prince lost kept a shaghal occupied long enough for time dilation to mean they would never be seen again. But the soul was also wrong. The calculation was grimly mathematical and religious, weighted to favor the nobility. The princess was indispensable, but the princes and courtiers were more than interchangeable. 
Lorraine had tilled the soil, given the princess's breath, given flesh and life to new souls. He had as much right as any to be among the fathers of a new generation. Divya's words did nothing for Barini. Divya's soul recited a litany of complacency and sacrifice, as Barini's soul probably whispered to him. The soul seduced by pulling on instinct. Barini retracted his radio sail against his back. He began to silently rotate, his mouth and eyes shut, hiding the hard radiation of his soul. Instinct was stronger. Past Divya moved in the low circles of the hive itself, with insoled skates whose skills were too valuable to be spent on farming. Accountants and building engineers worked around the queen and hive, erecting the nets of fine wire on high scaffolds, capturing the constantly beamed voice for the queen, weighing workers bearing regolith and frozen volatiles into the hive, scheduling work. The low and sold had some leisure with which to imitate the princes and courtiers. They did not have the opera house in which to put on the sagas, but they performed for each other in the hollows between mounds. They did not have libraries, but they retold legends and parables, refining their manners so that some day, if the chance came, they might mingle successfully with the princes and their courtiers. Although he mostly tended workers, Divya was also physician to clerks and petty functionaries who could not get higher status physicians. It was always difficult for a cold skate, living at the temperature of the surrounding regolith, to carry a hot soul. Even the ceramics of boron carbide centered and fired in the kilns of the queen creaked with distortions of temperature. In the worst cases, carapaces could even crack. Divya's hive patients possessed souls and jockeyed for patronage. They guarded their own opportunities and blocked skates like Divya from the princes. This, from what Divya understood, suited the princes, who received gifts constantly from these petty clerks. They were all taught to sacrifice, and for a while the idea of sacrifice could be romantic and ennobling. Freshly kilned skates were reared on the parables of the good worker, and especially the sacrifices of Nara the courtier. Nara had led away some of the Shaghal, and the saga spoke lovingly of its last moments. It felt heroic, its romance layered by generations of retelling. Yet it ran deeper than sacrifice. The males of the hive carried the same hereditary clays from the queen. The contributions of a few grand princes who had survived the migration accounted for limited variation in the hive. Divya was brother to the princes, the tax farmers, the landlords, and the workers. But privilege and status did not creep into a hive. Inequality stormed in, like hive drones breaking up a protest. The queen produced new souls with the radioisotopes sifted out of the regolith. Those who received souls no longer depended on capacitors to work and move through the night. The spiritual wealth became the power to see the radioisotopes of other souls or find more in the regolith. Most importantly, radioactive souls turned frozen gases into hot thrust. Divya met with Apisri in the camps of the low and sold outside the hive. Apisri had bribed a courtier for a meeting with Prince Lassia. Divya was nervous. He had never met a prince. He doubted his ability to persuade. He had channeled debate among like-minded skates, but 
This was his own idea now, and a high audience. It had been easy to speak in the dark to workers deep in the slums. This was the hive, vast and monumental. This is banned, whispered his soul. Once you speak with this prince, we are marked, you and I. The accountants will look in their records to see what soul you have, and they will put marks there against both of us. Didia and Abhisri approached a side entrance guarded by two big drones. Prince Lassia's secretary emerged from behind the drones. The brightness of his soul was stabbing. The lines of his ceramic shell were sleek and clean. The leading edges bore the emblems of his patron. Abhisri pulled a lump of distilled and refrozen breath from his gullet. Possessing it was a crime. So much breath ought to have been destined for the princes and princesses. The secretary took the bribe without otherwise moving. It vanished into his gullet. The hive drones studiously ignored the transaction. I am listening, the secretary said. We were told we would be speaking with Prince Lassia, Divya said. The prince is not available. My words are for him alone, Divya said. The hot circle of radiation from the secretary's soul shone full on Divya. A submissive reverence stole over Divya's soul. A fearful thought crept into Divya's mind. Might the souls have some secret language, mediated perhaps by particle decay? It was an eerie, paranoid thought, and yet something of substance passed between these souls, and Divya imagined his whole life being reported. I will bring any message to Prince Nasia. Divya and Abhisri backed away and spoke in low tones, in the rough dialect of the workers. You won't bring the message anywhere, Abhisri said. We have no other choice. Do what he says, Divya's soul whispered. There is danger here. A prince would have listened on his own authority, Abhisri said. This courtier will report what we say in the worst light if you tell him your offer. The workers held back a riot so we could make this offer. We must try. Divya turned to the courtier. Tell Prince Lassia that there may be a way for the workers and the princes to come to an understanding to increase farm yields. Go on. This is a message for Prince Lassia. Something as important as farm yields should not be toyed with. Where are your loyalties, doctor? My loyalties are with the hive. Would your soul say the same? The secretary asked. The shine of his soul was a beam, like the voice of the hero itself, focused through the smooth lens of his eye, in through Divya's eye. Divya felt hot. Of course, Divya said. If your loyalties are correct, then speak of increasing farm yields, doctor. Divya hesitated. The workers dig hard, but the regolith is poor. Additional incentives could make them eager to work even harder. Any worker who is not working as hard as he can is guilty of a crime, the secretary said. The treatment of the workers makes them less effective, Divya said. Beatings make them resentful. I have seen skates broken and killed by tax farmers. Broken skates produce nothing. 
Slack workers must be forced to do their duty. Examples inspire others. Divya's quick words were difficult to contain. He had urged restraint on workers on so many occasions so that they could bring forward something of substance. Only the thought that he was representing many workers held his anger back. There is a better way to inspire workers, Divya said. Odd that centuries of experience did not find it, yet a country doctor has, the secretary said. Divya controlled his fear. Abhisri edged backward. Workers move regolith, find the volatiles and radioisotopes, yet know they will never migrate. If a few workers could receive souls, the additional radioisotopes found would soon repay the gift. Souls for the workers the secretary scoffed. The apportionment of souls is a sober process. There are not enough volatiles now for the court. If breath were further thinned, instead of a quarter of the migration outrunning the Shaghal and the Maw, no one would. More skates on migration will draw away more Shaghal from the princesses, Divya said, especially if they are slower. You consign them to die? Do they know this? They are already dead. We all are. When the migration flees, every worker will sit waiting with the empty hive for the shaghal to come. You are naive, doctor, the secretary said. Every additional migrating skate takes breath from the princesses and princes. The sagas are filled with cautionary tales of migrants falling into the maw, or even the hero, when they lack breath. Your reckless ideas would jeopardize the whole migration. Not if we could find more volatiles, Divya said. Ah, the secretary said, and Divya felt as if he'd stepped into a trap. Let us explore your thoughts on farming. How much more could workers do? That would be based on how much incentive was offered. Treason, the secretary said, with the tone of someone commenting on the procession of the stars. Do you know the punishment for treason, for withholding breath or radioisotopes? I know it, Divya said. He was cold beneath that hot stare. Then let us pick a strategy to get those additional volatiles. Incentives, Divya asked. I do not trust incentives. Even among the princes, not every skate can be trusted. Fear and disincentives are the most consistently effective methods. Present The flashes of radiation from near the black hole resolved into searing waves of curtained light. Oranges. Red. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Whites. Sharp rays leapt from infallen gas, heating Divya's soul, even though they were still days away. And the maw was loud. It endlessly consumed the breath of the world. The infalling volatiles cracked with electrical panic. Loud, frightening snaps. The enormity of what they approached dwarfed even Divya's imagination. The rain of hot particles traced a line around the maw, outlining a monster large enough to swallow even the hero. Weeks of careful work by Divya and Ugra had pulled four more princes from the school. Soon, the princess would be unguided. Her soul carried other liturgies, secrets of growing a hive and waves and waves of little skates, but not navigational liturgies. Divya had caught up to the trailing edge of the school. Ugra was close. The Ma's own kin, the Shaghal, followed, and Divya imagined their enthusiasm as they neared the hive of their master. They shadowed the princes and courtiers, creeping closer and closer, hour by hour. Divya retracted his sail and exhaled the faintest of breaths to rotate slowly. His insides went cold. He'd never seen a shaghal. Three of them followed, one closely. He'd pieced his imaginings from the liturgies and sagas. Reality outstripped his nightmares. The Shaghal were big, reflecting light from hard ceramic and metal. Their bodies, triangular and flattened like a skate's, had long steel fingers for sharp grasping. It was as if a school of grand princes had been transformed by the maw itself into engines of appetite. The leading Shaghal thrust powerfully, leaping forward to hug Ugra in great fingers. It stuck a tube into Ugra's mouth and sucked away his breath. Ugra's fingers waved wildly, scratching at the carapace of his captor, until the shaghal cracked Ugra open around the mouth, exposing the soul. Divya did not see the rest. The shaghal held Ugra and thrust outward into an orbit to carry it far around the black hole and back to the archipelago of asteroids where new hives would be founded. And then Divya was alone. There was no more revolution. There was only he, a princess, a prince, and a pair of pursuing Shaghal. Between Divya and the prince, Divya would always be second. The prince's soul was larger, hotter, making his thrust more powerful than anything Divya could make. The Shaghal would reach Divya first. Then Divya, too, fell into shadow. He, too, who was caught, serves the hive his soul whispered. That was the role the princess had for him, and the priesthood of souls. The poor brother must die for the rich brother to live. He, too, who is caught, serves the hive. Divya thrust. No, his soul said. Divya blasted precious volatiles behind him, emerging from the shadow of the shaghal and even accelerating closer to the lead prince, the one closest to the princess. Monster, the prince said. I saw you waste your breath on yourself. 
Divya rode his exhalation, coming close to the prince. Both souls protested, shrieking, warning the prince with panicked static, but the prince did not understand. Divya clamped onto him, undersurface to undersurface, where his fingers could reach the prince's mouth. Belatedly, the prince scored Divya's carapace with sharp fingers. The prince's violence almost shook Divya away. Divya dug into the prince's mouth for the hot radioactive soul. Recriminations were loud in Divya's head, difficult to block out. The prince's soul was enormous. He had taken the best radioisotopes, and many ices to be sure, enough to become the next grand prince, if Divya had not caught up to him. Divya had learned from Dwani. He would rather end the next generation than let this prince recreate the colony they had left. Divya's fingers scrambled at the fine bands holding the prince's soul. The souls screamed. Divya's with memory, the prince's with terror. Princely fingers broke off some of Divya's. Divya snapped one of the bands, then another, then another. The prince's soul drifted free. The four of them shared a moment of disembodied terror. They screamed, and the prince went perfectly still. Divya held the screaming soul, its radioactive shine lighting the tireless night, as he pushed away the stunned prince. Divya slipped the soul into his gullet, unfurled his radio sail, and drifted clear. The prince wobbled and drifted. What were his thoughts now as justice was given to him? Did he blame Divya, blind to his own role? Perhaps this was not even justice. They approached the maw, where death became victorious over life, darkness over light. They raced so quickly that the red stars stippling the darkness had brightened to blue. Only Divya, the princess, and the Shaghaw following them remained, and they lived a quiescent fugue. Time became meaningless and long. The great sail of the Shaghaw was furled. The hero was so far, his voice so quiet, that the sails were decorations of brighter lives while they entered the mythic land of the dead. Before them, the maw cloaked itself in vast fields of hot clouds, but the breath of a thousand migrations was a poor shroud for the monstrosity of the maw's hunger. Light burned from beneath the clouds as warning. Speeding blues, falling greens, and throbbing reds each marked some particle falling into the maw. Divya's spiritual terror, for all that he had set aside the sermons and sagas, was visceral. He trembled. The souls within him, his own and the stolen one, quaked. His soul's whispers had become hypnotic, and he wanted to surrender, to believe. He was falling, accelerating. The maw had noticed him, and it summoned him. It was dangerous to be seen by the maw, yet only here could the migration be completed. Here, any differences in speed would be multiplied. The princess was still ahead of him. No one had been showing her the way. Divya's soul, between bouts of confession and recriminations, recited coordinates he would not follow. Divya thrust forward, using up more of his precious volatiles, until he was beside her. She was a sleek, flat skate. Larger than he, but built more toughly. Her soul was incoherent with fear, but she was brave. 
Within her she carried flat matrices of clay, stacked one upon the other, containing the hereditary secrets for the next generation encoded in the atomic gaps in the lattice of the clay crystals themselves. These leaves, paired with the ones he carried, would create the next generation. "'Are you ready, my prince?' she asked. Divya shivered with excitement. "'My prince!' To be beside a princess, near the eerie strangeness of the Maw, was like being in a saga. I will lead you past the Maw, Divya said. We are only two. He found her suddenly young, although they were pressed and killed in the same queen. She'd surely never questioned the powers who had cosseted her. She'd never had friends starved or beaten to death. Of course, she was young. We must go, Divya said, taking a star fix and comparing it to what he'd been taught by the souls. He was not taking their path. Divya understood the role of time dilation in the migration. Skates launched themselves into the future, leaping over generations of Shaghal whose population collapsed when bereft of prey. And when the skates established a new colony, few Shaghal were left to hunt them. To the skates migrating around the Maw and back to the archipelago of asteroids, the trip lasted a single year. To the unmoving world, they were gone for seventeen. The skates coordinated their leap. Those who survived reunited not only in space but also in time. Every acceleration and angle was perfectly calculated. The smallest error might leave a skate weeks, months, or even years from the rest of the migration. But Divya was not leading the princess seventeen years into the future. Their culture was bankrupt, built upon the broken carapaces of workers. No matter what happened, neither Divya nor the princess would ever see anyone from their hive again. Shorter migrations were more dangerous, taking paths closer to the maw and harder accelerations at perigee. Divya had worked out the trajectories without the help of his soul. He was leaping thirteen years into the future. Follow, Divya cried, over the protest of his soul. Divya aimed into the hot clouds around the maw and thrust. Past Divya and Abhisri had left the secretary, shaken in themselves. The secretary had issued remarkably detailed instructions to them on who he wanted watched among the workers. There was little doubt that should Divya or Abhisri fail to report to him, their souls would be removed, and the two of them killed. Disincentive, the secretary had said, is more reliable. Divya and Abhisri had no intention of reporting on the workers, but they had little time before they had to give something to the secretary. They passed messages to Esha and other work farm unionists. They struck secret committees to plan a true strike to grind the industry of the hive to a halt. They met in the worst of the shanties, where hive drones seldom passed. The hero processed auspiciously from the constellation of the good courtier to the constellation of the farmer, signaling the arrival of the longest night of the year. Workers could not move regolith without the shine of the hero. Even the tax collectors were reluctant to push workers on the longest night, which became a time for singing and performing the snippets of the sagas in the regolith fields and the slums. Divya was with the workers' committee when the hive drones thrust in, carrying metal weights. They threw the weights just before landing, cracking workers. Divya barely leapt out of the way. 
Workers scattered in terror as drones landed on them, striking ceramic with steel, tearing out wires that absorbed microwaves. Rows of hive drones ringed them. Apisri pushed Divya into an alley filled with panicking workers. Fly, Apisri said. I can't. You're the only one who can. This is big. They don't know you carry breath. A hive drone fell upon Apisri, striking with a pick in its hard fingers. Divya leapt on the drone, scratching and hitting. Divya had never fought anything, and the drone was trained for this. The drone jerked, sending Divya tumbling high in the microgravity. Below, the workers were awash in hive drones. They were lost. Divya exhaled a breath to correct his tumble as his trajectory carried him out of the slums. He thrust gently, turning, and settled to the regolith. A few skates, too weak or worn to work, saw him land but did not move. They surely took him for some wayward tax farmer. Even this far away, Divya heard the panicked electrical sputtering of terrified skates. Friends and brothers. But the commands of the hive drones were louder, more calm, angry, and organized. Crackles of electrical static shot orders, some encoded. Apisri was right. This was big. Flee, his soul said stridently. Flee! Divya rocked back and forth on his fingers. He itched to run. To help. To run. His thoughts were jumbled. He feared he would only think of the right thing to do when it was too late. And he feared the shore beating. The work farms. The amputation of his soul. The true darkness of being a worker again, detached from a whole world he could only perceive through his soul. Present. They thrust hard. The princess flew close. Hot violet radiation bathed them as the hunger of the ma's gravity sped them faster. They fell from heaven, like the hero himself. The whole world shifted into the blue. The sounds of static came tight and high-pitched. Tense. Near the maw, space itself feared, releasing ghostly sounds and strange discharges. The searing cloud abraded Divya. The keening of his soul heightened in pitch. Radiation and particle strikes corroded the little soul. It was not made to fly this close to the maw. It was composed of so many different radioisotopes that no matter what it struck, some part of it changed to something inert or something inappropriately active. The soul was going mad. They neared Perigee. Their speed was terrifying. Stars multiplied, filling the sky. Their haunting chorus blended with the relentless screams of the souls. Pray! Divya yelled to the souls. Pray! They did. In warbling tones of panic, the souls recited the metronomic cadences of the liturgy. Divya listened to the prayers as he never had before. Divya's carapace creaked. He was so close to the edge of the maw that the difference in gravity from his ventral side to his dorsal threatened to crack him. And still, the maw accelerated him. No sounds of the living world remained, except for the chanting of his soul, a simple prayer to a hero who had no authority here. A new, eerie ocean of slow echoes filled his senses. His stars, radiant microwave stars, were all gone. New stars appeared. They were dead, their glows constant and unblinking as the sleet of passing clouds flayed and scorched him. He counted time by the cadences of the soul's prayers. 
The intensity of the radioactive hail burned his soul, making Divya's exhaust so hot that it felt like riding a star. And the clay wafers that he carried, his gametic contribution to the future, hardened in the heat and pressure, forming the crystalline structures that could be laid over the wafers carried by the princess. The possibility of new life quickened in this crushing furnace. Divya counted the prayers and then, at a precise moment, he redoubled his thrust. Divya could not hear the princess. He stayed fixed on the strange stars. If he looked back for her, they would both be lost. Among these ghost stars, he could only trust. If she had not been able to follow, everything they had suffered at home was for naught. The maw grasped at him to crush, stretch, and snap him. The heat of Divya's thrust burned his own carapace. The clouds of hot gas brightened. He became so fast that even the ghost stars became too blue to see. The acidic particles shooting at the maw crowded out the darkness, filling Divya's world. Then the maw flung Divya away. The clouds thinned, but did not cool. Each grain floating in his path zipped into his carapace at nearly the speed of light. The world was eerie. He had left the maw, but not the land of the dead. Strange purple colors and warped fluid sounds drifted past him. He was a ghost, and the living world had closed itself to him. Yet amidst this dislocation, far away, faint, a point pulsed, frenetically like a young pulsar. Its microwaves were blue-shifted to a pitch that was visible instead of audible. The world was covered in a cloak of strangeness, yet he had to have faith that this was the hero, summoning him back from death. He was far from home, and had only whispers of breath left. He had used everything in the slingshot passage around the maw, and he did not even know if he had succeeded in leading the princess. He exhaled the tiniest gasp of breath. Achingly slow, he pivoted and his heart grew in a primal way. A few body lengths from him was the princess. He had led her into the land of death and past the maw. They could see the world of life, even if they were still fast-moving ghosts. It would take weeks to slow down. Her sleek carapace was striped and pitted with fine bones. Her soul was bright but quiet and reverent. Beyond her, the great bulk of the maw had begun to shroud itself again under layers of bright, doomed clouds. The gases and palliative spirals spit hard radiation, but now that they had passed the maw, their spite was thinned and reddened and sepulchral. The king of the underworld receded majestically. In that last moment of that hypnotic view, Divya saw a tiny distant silhouette carrying a point of hard, Hot radioisotopes. No. No, no, no. The maw had scarred them as they passed and had not let them truly escape. The maw let through one of its own, an engine of death, a famished monster that had nothing to eat but Divya and the princess. Past. Divya had ceased to sympathize with his soul. In the beginning, he understood it as a gift from the hero and the queen, as a guide for the migration. The soul was, in some ways, an alien presence, but partly comprehensible within its role as the voice of eternity. 
but it was pitiless. Petty. Commitment became inflexibility. Resolve turned to stubbornness. Morality deafened reason. Divya's soul argued, becoming more shrill. It was difficult to ignore the voice in his head. In part to draw the soul away from its recriminations, Divya spoke to his soul about the migration. Skates were taught nothing of the migration. This was safer ground to till. His soul calmed while considering the migration. Perhaps it thought that Divya was opening himself to redemption. At first petulantly, then with increasing enthusiasm, the soul spoke to Divya of what was to come. Even when Divya probed at the mystery of time dilation itself, the speeds and accelerations needed to achieve the magical dilation of seventeen, his soul answered him. Some of the pieces were symbols, or worse yet, allegories Divya had to suffer through to keep his soul talking. More useful were the liturgies containing mathematical proportions and angles and curves. Divya read meanings into the liturgies that perhaps his soul did not mean for him to understand. On the third day, Divya descended from the mound. He left the slums, and he hopped into the worker districts where tailing hills were evenly rowed, and the workers were healthier, younger. The neighborhood seemed lonely. This was a rest period, so most workers should have been back. In the distance, he saw the shine of another soul and turned away so as not to give himself away. Between dusty piles, he recognized a worker. Tejas, he said. Tejas approached. He had new scratches on the tops of his fins. Chips were missing along his leading edges. Divya, he whispered. I thought you'd been arrested. Epistry got me out of back alley. What happened? Tejas had difficulty speaking. The sparks he made were mistimed and sometimes sputtering. We were all beaten. Most were arrested. I thought they were going to crack me. Divya's strength left him. What charges? I don't know, Tejas whispered. They're all being sent to work farm number seven. Diwani's broken face stared out of memory. Tejas sputtered and shorted over his words. Abhisri got it bad, Divya. They took out his soul right there. They weren't careful. I don't think he made it. Divya sank into the packed regolith. Adding or removing a soul was dangerous. Divya had done it many times, but had not always been successful. The radioactive souls heated the ceramics and metals of the carapace and the neural wiring, while the skates cooled the souls. Sometimes the stresses on the skate and on the soul were too much. Tejas sneered. They told me he didn't say nothing to the interrogators, but his soul did. They're looking for you, Divya. You've got to hide. I told you, Divya's soul said. Turn yourself in. Name names. But Divya's soul had no hold on him any more. The crushing pressure of the hive and his soul had crystallized a sense of mission in him. They had hardened his wavering resolve into the seed of something much more permanent. He was deathly afraid of being cracked open like Duwani, of having his soul torn away, but he heard the sagas through Duwani's eyes now. I'll hide in the slums, Tejas, Divya said, where the broken workers lie. Send me the leaders, yourself included. I'm no leader. I wasn't even a committee member. We're all committee members now, Divya said. The revolution must begin. 
not the one Dwani and Abhisri wanted, but a larger one. Present Divya and the princess had little with which to escape the Shaghal. Divya had intended to unfurl his sail to break beyond the black hole, but that would do nothing more than bring the fast-moving Shaghal to them faster. They flew so quickly that the gulf between the Maw and the hero that had taken the migration many months to cross before now took only days. Yet, if they did not slow soon, they would overshoot their home. They unfurled their sails together. Blue-shifted radio waves punched their sails and the shock of slowing dizzied. As the tremendous deceleration intensified and the hero fed them, they became less ghostly. The world abandoned its frenetic blue-shift. Strange stars faded, their haunted voices quieting. Stars, he knew, began to shine as if just reborn, and the hero's voice aged centuries every minute, slowing finally to two flashes per second. Divya and the princess were reborn. We will find a way to survive, the princess said. No, not princess. She was the queen now. But no, not that either. No queens after the revolution, no princes, no grand princes, just skates, sharing what they had. Yes, we will. His words felt false. If they overshot their home, deep, deep space was a different kind of death than being crushed by the maw. I will try to shadow the Shaghal, Divya said. That will bring it to us faster. Yes, Divya said. Divya adjusted his path, spotting the Shaghal's soul as it shone in faintly blue-shifted hunger, far distant. It will be ravenous now, and desperate. Far behind, but still close enough to chill Divya's marrow, a great radio sail unfurled. Divya would make a poor shadow. The Shaghal was close and closing, decelerating at a furious rate. Divya slipped into the path of the pulsar's beam, cutting a shadow in the center of the Shaghal's sail. The shadow grew as the Shaghal neared. The Shaghal seemed to realize what was happening and angled its sail to escape the shadowing. Divya followed. The Shaghal jerked its sail the other way. It had no experience in avoiding a shadow. It hurtled closer, unable to do more than edge slowly sideways. The Shaghal tilted its sail wildly, trying to get around Divya. Divya jerked his sail opposite to the Shaghal's tilt. The hero's voice veered Divya aside, but not fast enough. The Shaghal's wingtip struck Divya. The knock was tremendous, accompanied by a snap. Divya spun. Pain. Sharp pain. And fear. And screaming. The second soul nearly flew from Divya's mouth. Divya righted his sail, catching the hero's voice, slowing his spin. Finally, he controlled his spin. The Shaghal plunged far ahead, toward the asteroid field. It was slowing, but Divya had robbed it of time. Now it would need every bit of effort to avoid overshooting the asteroid field. The ragged princess neared. Divya felt strange. His sail still pulled oddly, producing an ache under him. "'Your soul is glowing through a long crack beneath you,' she said. The rhythms of her sparking speech were quick, Fearful. He feared, too. Cracked. He was cracked. Dwani's broken face haunted his thoughts. Dust would get into his carapace and would scour his wiring into joints. 
soon he would only be good for resting on mounds. You will survive, she said. We will survive. You will make a magnificent grand prince. His soul and the stolen one made sounds of relief. The princess had accepted him as her mate. Despite his crimes and the hardships of the migration, the souls sounded guardedly elated. A new hive. His hive. Grand Prince. Divya would be the father of a new generation, one that, due to the separation of time dilation, would never see any skates from another colony. And his colony would have no landlords, no tax collectors, and no beatings. Past. Furtively, workers came to Divya in the slums, atop his mound. Most had never been unionists. Divya recognized his old fear in them. They came to speak to Divya about the massacre. Few had been there, but they knew the workers who had been killed and the workers who had been exiled to the work farms. They came as cowards might, shamefully, weighed by the guilt that they were happy not to have been there. The idea of sacrifice in them was strong, as it was in Divya. The hero had built them to sacrifice for each other, for kin. They were pressed of the same clay. The success of a brother worker or a prince felt like a success for all of them. Demanding something for themselves was difficult. The newly ensouled like Divya had to be taught selfishness, acquisitiveness by the souls. Yet these skates, who had not been brave enough to attend a union rally to help all of them, now slinked to the last committee leader, a skate who shared their guilt. They formed new committees. Tell them what to do, his soul said. You are better than this rabble. Leverage your influence here for patronage. Deliver the malcontents to the hive. Give bribes. Divya had bribes. The workers smuggled innumerable tiny nuggets of frozen volatiles to him. This struggle with his soul could not go on. And then he saw it again. In the distance, the brief hot shine of a soul looking this way. The sleet of radioactive particles stilled his soul. Divya shut his eye, shuttering the emissions of his own soul. Open your eye, his soul said. You can guess as well as I what that was, Divya whispered. Divya's soul laughed. More unionists have been picked up by hive drones, the soul guessed. The rascals must have spoken of an insult committee member dispensing fratricidal treason from a mound in the slums. It is rich that you would call me fratricidal, when I have never hurt another skate, while the hive beats, imprisons, and kills my brothers, Divya said. Your disloyalty endangers every skate and princess in the hive. Open your eye. Divya descended the mound with his eyes closed. Tejas was with him, as were Barini and Ugra. They did not have souls, and were accustomed to Divya's silences while he communed with his own. With his eye closed, the world was dark, but loud, filled with the hero's voice and the scraping vibration of his own movement. But in this way he was invisible to the other ensouled skate in the slums. "'What are you doing, Divya?' Tejas asked. An ensouled skate has been moving at the edge of the slums, 
Divya said to Tejas. I have seen him several times today. He is looking for something. Or someone, Tejas said. I saw only one skate. Perhaps an ambitious tax farmer seeks favor by catching a union leader. Hide, Tejas said. We must get you away. Me, Divya said. You were the key to the revolution, Tejas said. His voice was charged, tensed. He believed what he was saying, and Divya felt as he had when he'd first spoken at the rally. Exposed. Undeserving. Tejas, Varini, and Ugra, Divya said. Lead me closer so that we can see but not be seen. You will need to be my eye. What are you doing? his soul demanded. Tejas walked Divya on a winding, blind way around the tailing mounds. The hero was high in the sky, so none of the mounds cast shadows. Divya heard the hero's voice change tone when they turned. Catching the subtleties in the polarization of the radio waves was a different way of experiencing the hero, one perhaps more primal, and it calmed Divya as much as his new resolve. Divya was built for peace, but the princes and those who spoke in their name had taken matters too far for Divya to stay still. They were kin, pressed from the same clays, made to launch princesses and some males into the migration. Their success was his success, in the flat equations of biology, but skates had grown. They were no longer the primitives of the sagas. They reasoned. They were more than their instincts. They had grown past the need for souls to tell them how to treat each other. Souls created and perpetuated divisions in the hive. Princes, landlords, workers. But the skates carried their own blame for taking what was given to them, as blindly as Divya was being led through the slums. The souls had their own interests, not least Divya's soul. Brother and enemy. Family and opponent. Divya's steel fingers sunk into the thick regolith. Pebbles and larger fragments of iron nickel and hard volatile dry silicates were so numerous and uneven as to be stumbled over, especially blind. The four of them walked and hopped. From a distance, they would just be four soulless workers. He is to our left now, Tejas whispered. Take me onto a mound, Divya said. Tejas led Divya scrabbling to the top of the hillock. What are you doing? Open your eye, his soul said. Is he facing us? Divya asked. No, Tejas said. We are facing north. He is facing west. The revolution needed to happen. Working with the souls as they had was no longer possible. Divya lifted a large chunk of iron nickel in his fingers. He snapped his eye open and thrust, hurling himself toward the ensouled skate. You are wasting breath, his soul shrieked. Stop! Stop! Divya released the iron nickel chunk as he flew past, as a hive drone would have. It crashed into the other skate with such force that ceramic chips rattled against Divya's underside. Murderer, his soul whispered. Divya puffed breath sideways to spin, and then thrust to a stop and landed. He hopped to the ensouled skate. His three fellows were already there. Divya's attack had struck the skate's left leading edge near the eye. 
a gaping hole exposed the hot soul beneath. You are beyond redemption, his soul said. I will not rest until justice is done. I know, Divya said. Divya removed medical pliers and a small pry from his gullet. Dust caked them. He had been ensouled to help skates, to mend their minor wounds, to make them well enough to get back to the mines and farms. The hive had taught him anatomy and science for a skill he hadn't practiced in weeks. Do not touch that soul, his soul said. Both Divya and his soul could plainly hear the electrical panic of the soul in the fallen skate. Report this to the hive. No one may touch a soul without the authorization of the princes. Divya reached into the corpse, prying away the bands around the soul. He lifted it gently, leaving the inside of the carcass warm and hollow. No, his soul said. You must be destroyed, Divya, the soul said. You are the most vile criminal ever fired in the hive. Divya reached into his own gullet with his pliers. Divya's own soul screamed as he pried it loose and pulled it from his mouth. And then Divya was a worker again, for the first time in a long time. He had no sensitivity to most of the wavelengths of radiation and energetic particles. The world was quiet and cold. The stars were colorless. The souls before him were gray lumps, hotter than the regolith, but otherwise unremarkable. Divya set his soul in the cold, dry dirt. The temperature stresses crackled in the radio bands. He put the other soul carefully in his mouth and onto the mounting. As Divya lowered the bands to hold it into place and clipped it tight, the beauty of the spiritual world washed back in. And he was himself. The new soul spoke immediately, more timidly than Divya's soul. What are you doing? it whispered. Do not leave me here, his old soul cried from the cold regolith. Summon the hive! Divya took his own soul in his fingers and inserted it into his gullet where its shine would not show. Bury the body, Divya said to his co-conspirators. When it is completely frozen, we will take whatever volatiles it may have. Divya launched himself from the surface of the asteroid. It did not take much breath. The microgravity of the asteroid barely pulled the dust back to the surface. As the hive receded, he exhaled again and sailed away from his home and from the hero. His former soul was apoplectic. I might have migrated with you, Divya said to his soul. I had even thought of putting you into another worker, for the revolution, for more workers to migrate. Divya removed the soul from his mouth. But you are too dangerous, too intransigent, too willing to stamp upon workers with my fingers. His soul was incandescent in its anger, fear, and hate. Divya released it. For a time, they drifted away from the asteroid, traveling the same path. Then Divya turned back to the hero and thrust back toward the hive. His soul continued out, into the cold of space. Present Their new hive would need an asteroid in the gravitational stillness behind the hero's voice, preferably a slow-turning one, so that they could walk around it, always under the radiance of the pulsar, 
and one that was freshly cracked by an impact, or one whose radioisotopes and volatiles had not been harvested in centuries. There were thousands of asteroids in the archipelago, but not so many that a single, determined shaghal could not find a hive eventually. In some sagas, princes and princesses made a second migration, right after the first, to escape from shaghal following too closely. But Divya and the princess were exhausted. Little breath remained to them, and with his cracks, Divya could never again survive the crush of the maw. Divya and the princess retracted their sails from time to time to drift silently and listen for the shaghal. They could not hear him, but he could not be that far. He might already have ended his careening deceleration and be waiting even now in the archipelago of asteroids. Divya spread his sail, and the hero's voice pushed him outward. How much breath do you suppose you have left? Divya asked. I did not use all of it. Divya explained his plan as he turned away from the hero. He disgorged the soul he'd taken from the murdered prince and held it in his shadow. It shrieked. His own soul cried out. The princess's soul made a sound of revulsion. A soul was an ugly thing, a complex, layered brick of radioisotopes, humming with its own heat and shining with hard radiation. That light would draw the shag hall as soon as Divya revealed the soul to the asteroid field. This will not work, the princess said. What Divya asked was dangerous, perhaps impossible, but it was their only chance. I do not even have the strength you want. It is this or nothing, princess. This is all we have. A strong, fast, hungry shaghal lurks somewhere in the archipelago. While he is here, no hive is safe. They moved farther and farther from the hero, into an orbit where they would intersect the archipelago of asteroids at its outer edge, far from the best fields. They slowed over hours, risking creating radio reflections with their sails. The shaghal would be closer to the pulsar, where the voice of the hero would feed it and drown out their echoes. Every so often, Divya turned toward the hero, exposing the second soul. The soul's sharp, multi-rayed brightness would be very visible from far away. Then Divya would turn back, hiding it again for a while, before exposing it once more. Eight. Finally, an angry glare answered. The hot, harsh light of the Shaghal's soul was much closer to the pulsar. It made for them. Divya held the second soul visible, letting the Shaghal see their trajectory. Then he hid the soul from the Shaghal's sight. The asteroids neared, including a large, uneven ovoid, pocked with craters. The princess took the wires of Divya's sail in her steel fingers. They passed into the shadow of the asteroid and out of sight, and Divya released the second soul. The princess thrust, decelerating them. The soul hurtled onward, screaming. The tremendous deceleration bent Divya's sail and stabbed new pain into his underside. Divya and the princess both groaned, sharing the pain of the unnatural maneuver. Her thrust flagged. She had almost no breath left, and they would soon emerge from the shadow of the asteroid, but the soul was not far enough away. Don't stop, he said. There is nothing more. Then turn, he said, into the asteroid. We'll crash. They still traveled very fast, 
The regolith might be composed of deep powdered grains, or it might hide nuggets and boulders of nickel iron and hard ices that would shatter their carapaces. You are brave, Divya said. It is the only way, princess. She did not turn. He waited. The thrust sputtered. Please! The wires tightened and swung him as she aimed at the asteroid. They lurched as her breath expired. The regolith, even under microgravity, was frightening at their speed. Divya plunged deep in an explosion of dust, tumbling in the powder and pebbles, before being wrenched to the surface in a jarring, snapping stop. He was on his back. His underside hurt. He could not feel his sail. Some of his fingers were bent. He wiggled them and began digging at the dust until he was right side up. A deep channel gouged the asteroid. Dust rose, swirling on its own static. The princess had not let go of him. They had plowed the great furrow together before she herself had been driven by their speed into the regolith. She pulled herself free of the dirt. She had filled herself with dust, as had he. His insides, her insides, their souls were covered and for once silenced. They spewed regolith, thickening the rising clouds. You did it, princess, he said. You stopped us. You are a hero. She spat another gout of dirt from her gullet. Her anger and fear still crackled. Look, Divya said. The princess followed the line of his gaze. Far in the distance, just a point now, the second soul sped onward, on a trajectory that would take it past the gravitational eddy and back toward the pulsar. From this distance, it looked like a tiny part of a distant migration. On a course to intercept it, thrusting hot gas was another sharp point of radiation. The Shaghal. By the time it realized what it was chasing, the Shaghal would be committed to a trajectory that would take it all the way around the black hole. It would be years before it returned. In that time, the new hive would have risen and matured and launched its own migration into the future. There you go. Don't forget, Derek, what can I say? Copyright is Derek Coonskin. Derek, a big thank you. That's just a tremendous story. Wow, way to go, sir. Just keep on writing them. And if you don't mind, keep on sending those. <laughs> yes, if, if that's, if that's, if that's okay. And Veronica, do you know what I mean? I could just, another person I would just give a lovely bear hug to, you know, in the nicest possible way. Thank you so much. You know what I mean? It, it, just tremendous. Thank you. So, finally, and hopefully last but not least, is the the one, the only, Mr. J.J. Campanella with his November Science News. James, sir. Greetings and delectable morsellations, my adumbrated listeners, and welcome to this November 2014 Science News Update. I'm your host for this hyper-resplendently resplendent science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. Happy Thanksgiving to all you American and Canadian listeners, and uh, well, those of you elsewhere, I'm, well, happy end of November. I'm sorry, I can't think of anything more clever to say than that. Okay, so let's start out with a plug. I did an interview on Jesse Willis's science fiction audio podcast a couple of weeks ago, 
Uh, his cast is the science fiction and fantasy audio podcast, with which you may be familiar. Jesse tells me that it will be out at the beginning of next year. I think most Starship Sofa fans may want to listen to it. It's actually quite interesting. We discussed the H.P. Lovecraft story, The Mound, which was released as a book cast on my own website, Uvula Audio, about a year ago. The Mound is a classic Lovecraft story that very few people know about because Lovecraft was paid to write it for somebody else when his regular publishers were taking forever to pay him for his other actual published works. That was about 1930. The story was eventually published under Zelia Bishop's name in 1940, but it absolutely screams Lovecraft. I mean, how many times can one guy use the words Cyclopean and Eldritch in a short story without giving himself away as the author? Jesse and I had a long discussion about the story, its history and implications in the context of other writers and about my narration of it. Any Lovecraft fans who are curious can find my recordings of The Mound on the Mature Fiction section of uvulaaudio.com. Additionally, there are plans in the works to narrate the shorter story, uh, the prequel to The Mound, The Curse of Yig, and I should be getting to that soon. At any rate, enough of the plug. Let's get going with our first story of the night. Here's the headline of the day. Women smell better than men. Well, duh, I knew that. Certainly my wife smells a heck of a lot better than I do. I mean, heck, if men smelled as good as women, I would consider even playing for the other team. But uh, no, no such luck. Everybody knows that women smell better, and all right, I, I this is just silly. Um, enough of this nonsense. You've probably already figured out I didn't quite mean what I said. What I meant to say is, is that women have a better sense of smell than men do. Now, that actually makes sense to me, since my wife can often identify whether my six-year-old needs a bath from across the room, whereas I can't really tell if he needed a bath if he was draped over my head. So do women have a better sense of smell? It has been argued by some anthropologists that there are so many more fragrant perfumes and powders and lotions sold to women and not so many to men as a cultural phenomenon. But is it more than that? Are women simply more sensitive to it because of biological differences? This is a controversial question that's been batted around for years. The latest attempt to answer this question comes from Dr. Roberto Lent of the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro and his collaborators, who used a new method called isotopic fractionation to look closely at the olfactory bulbs of adult men and women. The story was reported earlier this month in the journal Plus One. The big finding? Well, it seems that women have up to 50% more olfactory bulb cells than men do, possibly accounting for smell sensitivity differences between the sexes. Gender differences in olfactory detection have been investigated for years and are suspected to influence social behaviors. While these differences certainly result in part from cultural conditioning, some evidence, such as the ability of babies and mothers to recognize each other by smell, suggests that there are biological origins. Lent said in the article, quote, To distinguish between socially driven sex differences and biologically determined ones, it is important to investigate and find the neural correlates of behavioral-slash-cognitive specificities of each sex, unquote. As I said, there has been some controversy about the smell question and the sexes for years. Evidence of a biological origin has been mixed. 
Researchers have looked into this question using electrophysiology, neuroimaging, with some studies actually confirming the superiority of women detecting odors, and others didn't. In physical terms, the olfactory bulb measures, well, slightly larger in men than women. And this particular paper says that unlike other mammals, neurogenesis does not occur in adult human olfactory bulbs, so the fact that one is bigger than the other in males versus females is kind of puzzling. Lent says, quote, the absolute number of cells for this purpose may be an accurate parameter, disclosing whether the processing units in the brains of men and women do differ, unquote. To count olfactory bulb cells, Lent used a method that he invented called the isotropic fractionator. His team obtained post-mortem brains from seven men and 11 women over the age of 55 and within 8 to 18 hours after death. In all cases, the brains came from people who were cognitively normal, did not show pathological markers in their brains, and did not work in fields relying on olfactory function, such as cooking, perfume-making, coffee-tasting, beer-brewing, anything like that. The isotropic fractionator lyses cell membranes, leaving behind undamaged nuclei, which the author stained and counted under the fluorescent microscope. Although female olfactory bulbs weigh less than male bulbs, they contained an average of 16 million cells compared to about 9 million cells in males. When the researchers looked exclusively at neurons, women had about 7 million as opposed to about 3.5 million in males. I mean, that's about a 50% difference. Lent stated, quote, Generally speaking, larger brains with larger numbers of neurons correlate with the functional complexity provided by these brains. Thus, it makes sense to think that more neurons in the female olfactory bulbs would provide women with higher olfactory sensitivity, unquote. While it's possible that the increased number of olfactory bulb cells in women may account for the functional differences in smell, the results raise some questions. In what specific circuits do these additional cells function? How and why did the difference of cell number arise during evolution? And do cell numbers change as odor sensitivity decreases with age? I suspect that the House of Chanel can answer none of these questions. Next up, Ebola. You may have noticed I have been very quiet on the Ebola problems that have arisen over the last couple of months. I will continue to do so because of the embarrassing and pathetically stupid aspects of the whole fiasco both in the U.S. and abroad. It is a sad statement that the CDC, the U.S. agency tasked specifically with handling problems like this one, have become so horrifically amateurish, risking the health and even lives of thousands of people. Instead of a diatribe, we can chat a bit about Ebola genetics and what makes this nasty virus so unique, or at least one of its aspects. Reporting this month in the online journal mBio, Dr. Christopher Bassler and his associates at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai have found that phyloviruses, including Ebola and Marburg, produce a wider range of gene products during infection than was previously thought. Bassler found that viral RNA polymerases, those are the enzymes that help make mRNA messages for making proteins, stall at certain genomic locations during transcription and add additional nucleotides in what he calls a quote-unquote non-canonical viral RNA 
editing process. Vassilis says, quote, Our study suggests the Ebola virus is making forms of proteins previously undescribed, unquote. The researchers first identified these modified viral RNAs during a series of deep sequencing experiments focused on understanding transcription, replication, and the viral life cycle of different filoviruses, including the Ebola species responsible for the current outbreak in West Africa, and as well a related Marburg sprain that caused an outbreak in Angola in 2005. Bassler's sequencing data revealed several previously unknown regions within these viruses, where editing resulted in the addition of non-template-encoded residues in several viral mRNAs, including those coding for glycoproteins, those are proteins with sugar on them, nuclear proteins, and uh, polymerases. There are other viral polymerases that are also known to stutter at certain locations, resulting in similar non-templated nucleotide additions. But this is the first time that such a mechanism has been identified in filoviruses. What's kind of interesting is that when the authors studied a variety of Ebola strains from different outbreaks, they found that the non-canonical editing sites were very conserved among the different strains examined. Bassler says, quote, while clearly expanding the diversity of mRNA products produced by the virus during infection, the impact and relevance of these modified RNAs is not entirely clear. We know these changes occur, but we don't really know yet what it means in the biology of the virus, unquote. He also noted that since there are many aspects of how the viruses replicate that are not yet understood, he said, we need a complete description of how they grow to develop new strategies to treat infections, unquote. So the upshot, the Ebola mystery virus makes protein that we didn't know it did, and we don't know what those proteins have to do with infections. Now you begin to see why it's so bloody hard to treat this virus. Well, okay, you want mysterious? How mysterious can any organism on Earth be? How about electric bacteria? Is that mysterious enough for you? Dr. Derek Lovely at the University of Massachusetts has found bacteria that completely bypass known sugar metabolism to entirely feed and excrete pure electrons. This is pretty amazing if you think about it, but at the same time, entirely expected in the realms of biology. Most bacteria and higher organisms go through all sorts of hoops to create energy, taking glucose and breaking it down through a series of reactions in order to move hydrogens around so that uh, they can power the process of making adenosine triphosphate, ATP. That's the most common of all the energy fiscal units. I guess it's a bit like the energy version of a $20 bill. Well, Lovely has found bacteria in the Potomac River that have bypassed all the glucose breakdown stuff, and they deal directly with electrons and protons for energy. Lovely says, if you stab an electrode into the muddy sediment of the Potomac River at just the right spot, then current will flow. The culprit is a class of microbial power plants capable of transferring electrons from inside their membranes to the outside world. By stripping electrons from unlikely organic substances like acetate, or lactic acid, and passing them to metallic compounds beyond their cell walls, these bacteria effectively breathe metals like humans and E. coli breathe oxygen, unquote. 
Lovely discovered back in 2002 that in the absence of oxygen, an electrode immersed in marine sediment would acquire a bacterial coating consisting mostly of the members of the family Geobacteraceae. These bacteria could actually extract electrons from acetate or benzoate and pass them directly to the electrode, no chemical intermediates at all required, and produce a measurable current. But if you kill the culture, then the current died as well. And that's pretty amazing, but even more confusing is that it is a setup for a huge biological question, which is, how do these bacteria even move electrons across a membrane that was designed specifically so that electrons couldn't go across it? Lovely and his colleagues found that in the electrobacteria S. onidensis, the route to move electrons out through the membrane involves an iron-rich protein complex that creates what is essentially a wire through the outer membrane. Lovely says, quote, you end up with a conduit that's a continuous chain of 15 or 20 individual hemes that go all the way through the membrane like a wire through the wall of a house, unquote. In his most recent study in the November issue of the journal Nature Nanotechnology, Lovely's team used an electrostatic force microscope, a form of atomic force microscope, to inject electric current into the bacteria's reproductive pili and watch the charge propagate. The results suggest that the pili function not by electrons hopping from carrier to carrier, as in common biology, but like a traditional wire or even a carbon nanotube. Lovely says it was completely unexpected. If you think that's pretty amazing, Lovely and company have even isolated an electrobacteria that they call Mari Profundus that can take up electrons from an electrode and pass them to oxygen. No actual food is required by this bacteria at all. He says, quote, Mari Profundus builds all the biomass and they do all their metabolism using nothing but a string of electrons, unquote. That is as close to a multifunctional 3D printer as has ever been observed in nature. If you can imagine being able to control an actual animal cell in this manner, you could generate a whole organ with nothing more than the correct genetic instructions on a bit of electric current. Lovely is now predicting the future for these organisms will be in things like desalination plants because there would be so little energy needed as input. He says, quote, by harnessing bug power, it may be possible to turn desalination into a net energy gain, unquote. Other applications that have been suggested include uh, remote sensing, soil remediation, and even biocomputing. It's just incredible. I mean, I'm seriously inspired with these microbial fuel cells. I just have to figure out what to do with them. I think even just running my iPhone on an electrobacterium would be cool enough, given the lousy battery life I'm getting now. At any rate, the next story is, well, it's kind of batty. It's certainly not in a good way. Scientists use all sorts of organisms for models, from mice to nematode worms to fruit flies and even monkeys. One of the organisms that I would not have considered to be a good one for study of a biological system would be bats. Yes, bats. Well, the Cape Crusader would be horrified, but this next story is about using bats to tell us more about memory and sleep deprivation. Dr. Arenus Rosinski of the Mammal Research Institute in Poland published a study in the Journal of Experimental Science in November 
which examined the connection between memory loss and lack of sleep. But he used bats to do this study. Brzezinski says, quote, sleep deprivation may affect our ability to consolidate memories and keep them from being transferred from the short term to the long term. It turns out that animals that hibernate to conserve energy, like bats, may suffer similar problems, unquote. The paper points up that both REM sleep and slow-wave sleep are reduced during torpor, and that animals that have recently emerged from hibernation spend a lot of time sleeping to repay the deficit, ironically enough. However, the jury was out on the effect of torpor and hibernation on rodent memories. Some species seem to form long-term memories fine, while the memories of others are impaired. Brzezinski was intrigued by the possibility that the low body temperature associated with torpor could impact memory formation. So he began testing the memories of chilled, great mouse-eared bats. Seriously, bats. Wouldn't dormice have worked just as well? Keeping the bats at either 22 degrees centigrade or 7 degrees centigrade, Brzezinski trained them to find food in a maze. And both groups of bats also had to learn the location of a dry perch when they were placed in a wet testing area. Testing the animal's memory of the location of food in the maze and where the perch was in the wet area, the team found that the bats' memories were equally good. Their body temperature did not affect their ability to form memories. Rosinski says, quote, The lack of clear cognitive effects caused by the decrease in body temperature could be explained by a bat's life history, unquote. He further points out that bats live in complex environments and that this could have forced them to develop compensating mechanisms that ensure that their memories are sound. Okay, here's a cool planetary geography story. Dr. Alexander Hayes of Cornell University reported the mapping of the methane ocean on Titan at the November 10th meeting of the American Astronomical Society's Division of Planetary Sciences. This is the first time that anybody has mapped the depths of the three methane seas on Saturn's moon Titan. The largest of these, Ligeia Mare, contains enough liquid methane to fill three Lake Michigans. That gives you an idea of its size. The sea bottoms showed up on radar observations from NASA's Cassini spacecraft, which arrived at Saturn in 2004. Researchers directed the probe to bounce radar off of Titan seas to see how choppy they are. A closer look at the data showed a second, weaker reflection after the first, indicating that the radar penetrated the sea and reflected off the bottom. The eastern part of Ligeia Mara averages from 20 to 40 meters in depth. And elsewhere in the Ligeia Mara, Cassini did not detect a second reflection, suggesting that the seafloor drops below Cassini's range of about 200 meters. Hayes also presented the discovery of a quote-unquote magic island, which is what he's calling something that appears to be a floating island in the Kraken Mara, the largest of Titan seas. He says that the mysterious feature sits on top of the sea and is most likely wind-driven waves or flotsam stirred up from somewhere below. I note regretfully that Hayes does not suggest that his mysterious island may be a giant floating alien spacecraft. Next story. Quantum computing. Is it finally getting closer to reality? Will your smartphone soon be quantum computing smart? Eh, maybe. A paper in the November issue of the journal Physical Review Letters 
by Dr. Mark Tame of the University of KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa suggests that, yeah, we're closer. Tame employed a 20-year-old algorithm called Simon's algorithm to demonstrate the benefit of using quantum computing to solve certain problems. Simon's algorithm provides instructions for a computer to determine whether a black box returns a distinct output for every possible input. It was the first example of problem-solving software that quantum computers should be able to execute exponentially faster than conventional computers as the problems get more complicated. Tame and his colleagues ran a simple version of Simon's algorithm on a computer with six quantum bits. The quantum computer ran the algorithm twice on average to solve the problem. A conventional computer would require nearly three tries on average. The results match Simon's predictions, the researchers say. The gap in the amount of tries would rise exponentially as the number of possible inputs increased. Although Simon's algorithm has no practical applications at all, Tame says that the experiment is a step toward implementing quantum software for data encryptions. Hmm, high-fidelity encryption. Well, if quantum computing keeps the NSA and hackers out of the hair of the public, then frankly, more power to quantum computing. The final story of the night involves DNA and memory and is actually related to the quantum computing story. Are you worried about long-term storage for your computer information? Imagine if we had a storage system that could last for virtually thousands of years with little change in the memory storage. And no, I'm not talking about hard-copy books. Well, someone has thought of this before me and decided that DNA would make the perfect analog storage system. Doctors Fahim Farzafad and Timothy Liu from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology have developed a method to make genomic tape recording a reality. They report on this in the most current issue of Science. DNA is an incredibly effective and efficient example of information storage with multiple levels of encoding and flexibility. It's for that reason that many researchers have toyed with the idea of manipulating DNA to store information. In fact, several groups have gone so far as to create elaborate coding schemes to place information into non-coding regions of DNA that can be later read out using various technologies, for example, DNA sequencing. While it's clear that information can be placed into DNA, is it possible to directly record cellular events and histories into the DNA of a living cell for later review. Lou and Farzafard report a new technique that actually makes it possible to record in the DNA not only that an event has happened, but also the timing and amplitude of transcriptional signals received by living cells. This creates for the first time a form of inducible analog memory in cells. The basic concept behind the new technology is fairly straightforward. In response to a biological signal, a single strand of DNA is produced inside the cell that in the presence of a co-expressed recombinase targets a specific genome location for homologous recombination with single-stranded DNA. What's the translation of that? It means that the newly made single-stranded DNA is targeted to a specific part of the chromosome and then forced to become part of the chromosome at a particular location. It's a little the way I can take a bit of music and ta-da! Everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of the team. 
and there the music is gone. It was very easy to put that music, edit it in with the rest of my mellifluous tones. Lou says, quote, We are looking for a way to express single-stranded DNA in vivo so that these synthetic DNAs could be incorporated into the genome as a form of memory under the control of exogenous inputs. Thus, systems that evolved reverse transcriptases were the reasonable direction to try, since these enzymes should convert RNA, whose synthesis can be put under transcriptional control, into DNA, unquote. Liu and Farzafard decided to try using a new class of bacterial DNA called retrons. Retrons are a unique class of bacterial DNA sequences that encode a reverse transcriptase and two other RNA components, a primer and a template, all in one DNA cassette. You may or may not know or remember this, but reverse transcriptase is an enzyme which, using RNA as a template, can actually read it and make DNA. So, hence the single-stranded DNA. The authors realized that if they added an inducible promoter to a retron cassette, then modified its template to identify a specific genomic location, retrons could be the perfect way to generate single-stranded DNA for their analog memory system. While it proved pretty straightforward to put an inducible response element, such as the one that responds to the presence of sugar lactose, for example, on the retron, altering the template proved more challenging, requiring Farzafard and Lou to identify the essential regions of the template strand. After some trial and error, they were able to create an inducible retron that generated a modified single-stranded DNA template. They next tried incorporating the new single-stranded DNA into bacterial DNA. Previous research had shown that beta recombinase could efficiently recombine synthetic single-stranded DNA oligonucleotides into bacterial DNA. So the authors reasoned that the same recombinase, if expressed in their cells, which generate a single-stranded DNA, would generate specific genomic changes at known locations in response to transcriptional signals. After putting together and testing all the pieces, a proof-of-concept experiment was performed. First, to demonstrate the system's ability to produce single-stranded DNA in response to a signal, the retron cassette was placed under the control of a lactose-inducible promoter. When induced by the sugar, the single-stranded DNA could be detected but the effect was abolished when the authors tested a retron with point mutants in it, mutations in the reverse transcription uh, gene site. Then they assessed the ability to recombine the modified template uh, that they were generating into bacterial DNA by co-expressing beta recombinases in the cell. And the authors call this new system SCRIBE for Synthetic Cellular Recorders integrating biological events. They now have the ability to toggle recording functions based on signals, record the magnitude of a signal, and also determine the timing of a signal input. The reason the signal magnitude is possible to obtain using the scribe system is because this approach looks at a cell in populations, not as single cells. But Lou says future work could actually focus on single cells and the efficiency of the scribe system. Quote, we are working to increase the efficiency of writing. This would allow us to perform high-efficiency genome editing and implement single-cell memory, unquote. Well, that's all for me for now. 
As always, take care. Men, don't challenge your female friends to a smell-off. Let your bat get enough sleep. He probably needs it. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. And there you go. Thank you so much, Jim. What a star, sir. Have a fantastic 2015. We're getting right into there. Yes, you know what I mean? Hopefully many more articles by yourself coming to Starship's over. I know it's a, it's a challenge sometimes, but I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. So, yes, we are in kind of the, the waning days of November, coming into December 2014. Man, that's just flown over. Do you know what I mean? Where has this gone? Do you know what I mean? Just, what can I say? Big thank you to everyone that's kind of come on the show today and kind of Mark Zickery, Derek Coonson, Veronica and Jim. What can I say? Big thank you. Do you know what I mean? We're coming into kind of December, Christmas time and that just gets me excited. And yes, we have had our decorations up yet this now for quite a while. Um, Yes, yes, it is November and I'm sitting in a little winter wonderland here. We're all, when I come in, mind you, when I come in on a night shift, you know what I mean, the kind of night shift, when I come in from you know, finishing late at work and all the lights are on, you know, she, my good wife, Melanie's got all the, Mrs. Mrs. Starship's got all the lights on and it's all like and this red warm glow and it's cold and wet outside. Man, what a welcome sight that is. You're walking up the steps and you're kind of, you know, your, your windows, you're just kind of this warm glow from the Christmas tree lights. You know, yes, it's November, but by God, you know what I mean? It's so nice. Do you know what I mean? It's just fantastic. So, I have enough, uh, waffled on enough. Do you know what I mean? It, just enjoy me sitting talking. No, 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 no I'll, I'll get away. I'll leave you. Until next week, honestly, just want to say a big thank you and good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape? Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment. Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa, a vacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one.
This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.